VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Tuesday, January the 31st. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Paddy Daly, and David Williams. He's producing the program. You'll be speaking with David when you give us a call to get on the air. So if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 273-5211, or elsewhere it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. And, well, there goes January, blink of an eye, month, first month of the year, just about behind us. And just fair warning. I don't know what it's like where you live or where you are this morning, but I gave myself a little scare with the black guys twice. Once in the driveway with a little minor slip getting into my rig and then coming up to the first stop sign. So if there's a bit of black ice out there, beware. All right, so last week, the Newfoundland Labrador Soccer Association gave out its uh, annual awards. Gave a couple of shout-outs here. Holy Cross Kirby Group Women's Team, of course, they were the senior team of the year. They go on to win their seventh straight Provincial Jubilee Trophy, off to the Nationals undefeated to win the province's first women's title, outscored their opponents 18-1. to Jane Pope, who's a striker with Holy Cross, she was the co-winner of the Golden Boot at the Nationals, and she's been named the Senior Female Player of the Year. On the men's side, Jake Warren, he's the Senior Male Player of the year and then Jake Stanford of course Jake Stanford is coach of the year he coached both Holy Cross teams both on the podium with the national tournament so bravo to Jake and let's keep going here under 15 Premier Youth League captain Madison Burke is the youth female player of the year for 2022 and the boys side uh, Jack Turpin plays for Paradise under 17 and in the Challenge Cup, so he's the Youth Player of the Year. Uh, Ron O'Neill, Executive of the Year. Craig Dyer, the Volunteer of the Year. Mohammed Odan is the official, the Senior Official of the Year. And then the officials in the youth side, they give out both female and male. On the female side, it was Megan King. She did over 30 games in the Premier Youth League. Uh, Aubrey Noons uh, is the Youth Male Official of the Year. And just a helpful, friendly reminder that when you go out to watch your son or your daughter, or nephew or niece and grandchildren play at the minor and amateur level it's always worthwhile taking that deep breath and giving the refs a break because i was at a game a couple of weeks ago and this one person was just relentless going after the referee who was doing a fairly reasonable job as far as i could tell but anyway give them a little tiny break and in the sports world if you have a travel athlete in particular the deadline is quickly approaching to apply for the 2023 athletic excellent fund excellence fund so it comes through the premier's athletic awards the team guju awards the elite athlete assistance program and sport nl's sponsorship program so you have to be in good standing with a provincial sports organization and you have to have your application in by the 15th of February. So if you have a person in your sphere that that suits them, please do apply. This is an interesting one on the sports note. I mean, long have young people come out of nowhere and done very, very well at the elite levels of sport. It was today in 2015 that New Zealand's Lydia Ko became the number one ranked player in the world. Of course, she's a female golfer. The youngest man or woman to ever reach number one. Imagine, 17, number one in the world. And I'm never really surprised about what stories will get a lot of feedback, email or otherwise. And so I guess it was yesterday. Yeah, today's Tuesday, so it must have been yesterday. A lady called about cell phones in schools. And fair enough, it's not the first time we've ever heard of this. And they can be quite the distraction. We know how many people, regardless if you're a school-aged child or otherwise, 
People spend a lot of time with their phone in their hands, and I will have to admit, put my hand up, I spend a bit too much time on mine. So her concern was whether or not there are across-the-board directives given to administrators and teachers with how to deal with cell phones in class. And yes, there may be the need for some teachers that use technology, because it's available, to help offer their lectures. But there's no good reason why there can't be a place to just to pop your phone when you walk from class to class. Many parents would like their, chil- their children to have a phone for safety reasons, to be able to touch, uh, touch base, whatever the case may be. And that's up to you. It's your money, your child. But when they get in school, there really is no good reason where if the teacher thinks it's become a distraction, and of course that's the temptation that's right in the palm of their hand, is just some bin or some pocketed outfit on the back of the school, the classroom door where they just put their phone. So it's remarkable how many people reacted to that particular story. And I'll throw this one in there because it's been a few years since I've even mentioned it. I'm probably in the minority, but so be it. I don't see the downside of reinstating school uniforms either, to be honest with you. It would, you know, stop that back-to-school pressure for the best and the most expensive and the coolest uh, item that's out there for whether it be on your feet or on your back it kind of levels the playing field a little bit so I think it's cost effective for the parents and there's no downside as far as I can tell in the classroom I remember one pushback that we got a few years back on this topic is that you know what you wear is part of your self-expression it's part of who you are and that's absolutely true people will indeed be identified and recognized with their fashion choices and so be it but when you're in the K-12 system who you are probably shouldn't be based solely on what you wear. But anyway, you want to throw out some school uniforms? Let's go. This sticks with school, and I remember reading about this years ago. But on this date in 1962, the infamous Tanzanian laughter, uh, laughter em- epidemic broke out. It's really quite a story. So it was in a girls' school where it was first identified. Some children had the uncontrollable giggles. At some point, it became unmanageable for the teachers to even continue with their lessons. So psychologists at the time believed that it was an outbreak of mass psychogenic illness. So it spread from a few girls in one class. Eventually, just in that one school, affected 95 of the 159 students aged uh, between 12 and 18 years of age. Some of the symptoms of uncontrollable laughter went from a few hours to some 16 days. It became such an issue that they actually closed the school. (laughs) On the 18th of March, reopened in May. By the time this whole Tanzanian laughter epidemic was done with, so it affected some 14 schools, over 1,000 pupils, absolutely uncontrollable fits of hysterical laughter. Today, 1962. So psychologists and uh, scientists, they debated back and forth whether this was a stress response or mass psychosis or what have you. But imagine a laughter epidemic. Nothing wrong with a laugh, I suppose. All right. I heard uh, the VOC Morning Show speak about Kelly Leach at Big Brothers Big Sisters. And they've got a really long wait time of young people who are looking for a mentor, a big brother or a big sister. There's a real distinct need in for big brothers to come forward. So I'll just put that out there because that's an important organization. We know how important that mentor or adult figure in a young person's life can be. But apparently there's a volunteer shortage right across the country. We know in this province, volunteerism is not only critically important, but so many people are willing to give of their free time 
generously. And, you know, if you pull back what volunteers do, governments at any level will never be able to backfill not only the horsepower, but the energy and the commitment to one community group or another. So this has come from Volunteer Canada. Their president CEO, uh, Megan Conway, says there's a bunch of reasons why people have not returned to the volunteer force, whether it be issues regarding the pandemic and cost of living. She says people are reprioritizing. So whether it be how you handle your own free time or the fact that so many people maybe have had to take a second job to keep up with the explosion and the cost of living issues. So apparently, whether it be food banks or shelters, Meals on Wheels programs and otherwise, they say they're having a real problem getting volunteers back in the fold. She says approximately 67% of organizations surveyed by Stats Canada in November of last year indicated they're having a difficult time recruiting volunteers. 35% of organizations had to make a reduction to their services. So I don't know what the Newfoundland and Labrador specific stats would be, but apparently volunteer shortage across the board. Okay. So it might not impact you, but I do think it has a widespread impact. And that here we are, day two of the Memorial University Faculty Association strike, impacting some 800 instructors and professors, and of course the entirety, if we're being realistic, of the university community. So whether it be instructors and uh, lecturers, professors out of Grenfell campus think they've been ignored, and this is an opportunity to be heard. We know that the university is focusing on the rate of pay that's been offered to members of that uh, association. And the members of the faculty association are also talking about a bunch of different things, respect in the workplace, what have you, and what they're referring to as collegial governance. Here's where I get a little bit confused on this one. And if you represent either side or a member of either side, feel free to call the show. But they're talking about the MONFA having more say in academic-related decisions, whether it be the seat at the Board of Regents, a permanent seat, and or with the Senate. So they're looking for that. But my confusion lies in the fact that the university, as a standalone entity, can't make that decision. It requires provincial legislation to be amended to accommodate that. So if that will be the sticking point, it might be a good while before the provincial government makes the amendments to the Memorial University Act. So that gives me, I think, reason to believe what many thought would be a short-lived uh, job action. Maybe not, because if that's a sticking point, that might take a while for it to come to pass. Now, government can move quickly. Governments aren't noted for moving quickly as a rule of thumb, but that's out there. You know. It's also curious that we've heard from the student union, we've heard from the faculty association, we've heard from some of the leadership uh, at Memorial University, but there has been a distinct silence coming from President Vianne Timmins, and whether it be the Premier or the Minister of Education. And I saw an interesting note from a, I believe this person is a professor at Mon. They go on to say, a key issue is how many people in leadership positions are temporary at Memorial University. Ten of the 17 deans, either interim or temporary, five of the 16 vice provosts, assistant VPs or chief officers, two of the six vice provosts, one of one provost position, either interim or temporary. So, goes on to say, hard to make decisions, implement visions, consult collegiality, etc., without authority and legitimacy. That's, so that's an interesting point. If you want to pick it up, we can do it. And the caller yesterday pointed to, you know, the interruption in, of course, every student's life who's lectured or uh, a professor gives them their course load. But, you know, especially, I think, in places like engineering and tech, and yes, the healthcare workers who are being trained, and what this might mean if it's a prolonged strike. So we'll see. 
also want to throw this one back out there because I think uh, some quite interesting observations coming. That there was an all-male nursing staff on shift on 4 North B sometime last week or the week before. And, you know, there has been... You know, women's work and men's work has long been the thought in different professions, when, of course, much of that is going away. Men uh, represent about 9% of nurses nationally, but now we're seeing a big uptick, uptick. What was once an annual increase of about 1% in nursing school registration by men, now we're seeing 20 to 40% uh, of the seats being occupied by men in nursing schools. And, of course, the exact same training and qualifications upon graduation. But the one keen observation that a listener had made was that, you know, we've made great strides when we had formal campaigns, for instance, women in the trades. It's made a huge difference. So maybe it's a great idea to avail of the other half of the population to encourage them and speak to them about what is a terrific job. Well, <laughs> I guess it depends who you ask. And, you know, a real formal campaign to recruit men into the registered nurses fold. Anyway, I'll put that back out there if you are so inclined. We're actually trying to reach out to Deirdre Connolly. She's with the Happy Valley Goose Bay Office of the Sexual Assault Crisis and Prevention Center. They're waiting for a sexual assault nurse specialist. So hopefully we can speak to it in greater detail if Miss Connolly is able to uh, get back to Dave. I think Dave reached out to see if we can't get her on the show, but that's a big, broad story. You know, in Labrador, some of the numbers regarding sexual assault are really quite dire. This is from the, the Canadian press in 2021. Labrador had a sexual assault rate that was four times the national average. Between 2016 and 2020, the rate of sexual assault in Labrador was between four and six times higher than the island of Newfoundland. So it goes on to say 531 police reported sexual assaults province-wide, 28% increase from the previous year. So when you have that prevalence of something as dastardly as sexual assault, and we know full well that not everyone who is sexually assaulted comes forward, but may, hopefully Ms. Connolly can speak to exactly what that role does and what gaps it fills if they do indeed get that long-promised sexual assault nursing specialist in Labrador. All right, so I heard Brian Medore in the newscast talking about a rash of armed robberies in Metro last night. There's a story in the news about uh, crime in Placentia and what was once a very calm, peaceful community of 3,300 residents regarding locking their doors and what have you. They've seen a big spike. And it all boils back to many people will say the go-to here is for increased police presence. There's no vacancies in the RCMP detachment, whether it be in Placentia and or Whitburn. But, you know, if you want to talk about crime, I know that police is a comforting factor for so many, but also as to how and why they find themselves as part of the criminal element, I think should be part of the conversation a bit more. I want to say, and you know, crime is, that's one of those things, and I'm not interested in scaring anybody because I don't feel like being scared, but it's the impact on community mental well-being. Very real factor here. I mean, even me, remember there, whatever it was before Christmas, where there was a couple of days you're told to stay in place. You know, someone going around with a gun in CBS. And that gives the community that pang of nervousness and anxiety and may indeed have long lasting impact for some members of the community. So on that front with mental health, mental well-being for all of us or individually, and I want to say good morning to Christy Allen, who's a terrific mental health advocate. She wrote an excellent piece that was uh, published on the CBC website about 
her own mental illness, but also mental health, mental well-being, and mental illness, and how it's accommodated, treated, and understood in the workplace. It's certainly in everyone's best interest that the company you work for, or the organization you work for, have focus and attention on mental health-related matters, and programs and supports in place. And they go on to point out that there's big numbers of people who are diagnosed with mental illness in this country. How many of them are unemployed? See if I can find that quick. According to the Canadian Mental Health Association, 70 to 90% of people with a serious mental illness are unemployed. And that translates into a loss of billions of dollars to the economy. Now, I'm not... How do you say this? You know, for employers to have a better understanding of mental health and mental illness and program supports not only for those who are already on staff, but to further open the doors for more and more hires because we can't be just afraid of or wary of people with a mental illness diagnosis as if they're all of a sudden unemployable because it's simply not true. So she wrote a great piece and if you're interested, I think it's still up on the SEEBS website if you want to give it a look. And of course, Christy's always welcome to call. Uh, how are we doing on the phone there, Dave? All right, just bang around a couple of quick ones here. You know, it's with some level of disgust that when we see how some people in some departments at the government are willing and willfully doing away with any checks and balances to scam us of our money, whether it be some of the issues that we saw at the uh, English-speaking school district and the splitting of invoices and the expensive wheelbarrows and winter tires in the middle of summer and on and on it went. And then it cost a couple of million dollars to put in some appropriate oversight. And then this story here is just one of what would be unfortunately many because when you work for us in a position of trust with access to our money, you know, that is a, a responsibility that cannot be taken lightly. And then these stories of people who have gone to great lengths to steal or to fraud us of our money. And this one story is a woman who's pled guilty to fraud over $5,000 regarding what is a very sophisticated fraud scheme to bilk us for over $564,000, over a half a million dollars. So this person was setting up fake bank accounts to misappropriate funds, going to spend 30 months in prison, rightfully so, has to pay restitution of the full amount that they stole, but it's these types of things where, you know, how much more additional resources and money and time and focus do government or pardon me, departmental officials, and I guess government at large, have to spend knowing that there's people working in the ranks, access to funds, whether it be in this case MCP in the dental plan or otherwise, that are playing footloose and fancy free with such a responsibility, end of the day, hurts them, hurts us. And it further erodes trust in government, whether it be procurement or otherwise. And I was reminded, I think, in a friendly fashion by a listener, that we all can indeed identify problems. What sometimes is lacking in those types of conversations regarding problems, whether it be in healthcare or otherwise, is solutions being offered, whether it be by opposition members or members of the sitting government or individuals, regular citizens like you and me. So I try to be mindful of the solution part of a conversation. But, you know, if you have good ideas, please share them. And nothing gets a reaction on this program quite like a good news story. So don't hesitate, because as much as we know there's lots of doom and gloom out there, there's still lots of good people and lots of good stories. Even just a good Samaritan story yesterday brought on some dozen or more emails with sharing of their own personal stories, reflecting good deeds uh, in the community. So while there's consternation 
run amok. Maybe some good news is probably worthwhile sharing as well. We're on Twitter. We're on VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openlineofvocm.com. My favorite is when you join us live on the show, which you can pick up the phone and do exactly that during this break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's begin on line number five this morning. Steve, you're on the air. Good morning, Steve. How's that pot doing out there, David? Steve on line number five, are you there? We'll put Steve on hold. We'll see if we can get him in a second. Uh, let's try number four. Sean, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty Daly. Good morning. Are you? Not too bad. You? Really good. Uh, Patty, uh, yeah, I really feel very uh, dis- distracted this morning. Uh, good word to use uh, about the cell phones in the classrooms. Okay. Um, it's tough enough, you know, when you're competing with uh, with all those different uh, social media companies uh, putting out everything you can think of to grab your attention. But as a teacher, I can't imagine what it's like to try and compete with cell phones uh, right alongside of them and then be an entertainer and all the other things you've got to be to keep the attention of the students in classrooms these days. It, it must be just so difficult. So I wanted to mention something to you. There's a company in Ontario uh, headed up by Linda Hassenfrass. Linda is the head of Linamar Corporation. And many years ago, many, many years ago, uh, a couple of us were into a meeting, a board meeting with them. And as we walked into the board meeting, and this is like the fourth largest uh, auto parts manufacturer in North America. Uh, and they don't fool around. Um, they're right there alongside of Magna, and like up by Aurora. Anyway, so you go into the board meeting, and as you're about to walk in, the security guard comes over and says, excuse me, sir, cell phone, please. And the next person comes along, excuse me, sir, send cell phone, please. And you don't argue with them. That's the rules of the meeting. And right on, right on up to when, when Ms. Hassan Prize came in, the CEO, and she also gave up her cell phone to the security and went into a lockbox. And when the meeting's over, a few hours later, then everyone could get their cell phones back. Now, that'll tell you how important it is at that level where you're basically there for, for a meeting, and the meeting was obviously at the highest level. Uh, when you think about a classroom and you try to teach children how to have some attention to what's going on and really clue in to what's happening and how important it is, you know, it's very, very important that our children through those years in the classroom, whether they're there to learn, actually have the opportunity to learn and not being distracted uh, with all the stuff going along right around them, uh, you know, on their desk or right. other things happening. And it's so difficult to do. So I'm with you. I, I, think, I think we've got to just pull it out of the classroom completely, put it in a lockbox, whatever it takes, until the next class. And it should be right across the board, teachers included. Let's get down to using the smart board. That's what it's there for. You don't need a cell phone to use a smart board. You don't. I wonder at the uh, high-level meetings that you describe, some of those, and I've been involved in meetings where they ask you to uh, relinquish your cell phone. Some of that's about uh, security as much as anything else. But, yes, it is a distraction. I mean, just think about the day-to-day distractions that a young person would have in a classroom between daydreaming and, you know, just kind of dazing around the room and having a little private chat with their buddy or and yes if you add cell phone to it because the temptation is real my cell phone is within reach of me right now and unfortunately for me as soon as I go to a break I may indeed out of habit reach for that phone now I try to keep it out of my hand for the most part when I'm actually on the air but it's a very real distraction and a very real temptation and the problem here I think becomes as simple as 
There's no across-the-board directive or rule inside of schools. So some teachers may indeed be very forceful on this front and deal with cell phones in a certain manner. Some may indeed have thrown their hands in the air, say it's not worth the aggravation or the headache to have that fight with the uh, child and then uh, consequently maybe the racket with the parent. So if there was a rule in place, it would make the life much easier, I would suggest, for every administrator and teacher, but also for a lot of students. You know, it just My absolutely point, Daddy, would. Yes, you're, you're spot on. And that's the reason I say it across the board. It's, you know, if one teacher doesn't do it and one does, it's confusion. You need one rule for all. You know, if you go into a, a meeting, let's say it was a teacher's meeting, uh, you know, I don't think the teacher would appreciate or the parent would, have, would appreciate going in for that meeting and both of them have the cell phones on and they're both looking down at the cell phones and here you are discussing, you know, the issues with your child or the opportunities with your child, you know, because a lot of children are not working for their potential. So here they are trying to learn in the classroom. A teacher is trying to teach, but, you know, that inevitably turns out to be, uh, you know, zero-sum factor there. How do you learn when you're, when you're distracted with, with all this going on around you and the teachers as well? I think it's time, you know, at the highest levels of icons in this country, and by the way, the meeting wasn't about security. It was like, I'm sorry, the taking of the phones at that meeting wasn't about security. It was all about one thing, and that is if we're going to be in this meeting and we call this meeting, then we're going to have everyone's attention. And that goes on in a lot of the corporate environments now. It's very frowned upon for you to haul out your phone and look down or you know, even have the temptation to because you don't have the eyes on that person giving the presentation. I mean, that's what you paid for. That's why it costs so much money to run these meetings. I think it costs us an awful lot of money and effort to get our children to school. And if they miss out on some of the most important parts of the lecture in the university setting or a trade college setting or in the everyday school setting, and they've lost that probably for good because maybe that's the one piece of that class you needed in order to do that bit of work you need to do to get your presentation ready or your or, or, or answer the question on a test or whatever happens after that. That information is gone. Yeah, I mean, and if parents, I mean, how common is it to go to a dinner party now and the host will say right away, phones away, folks. And so whether that be left in your coat pocket or what have you, I mean, if parents recognize it, whether it be on the socialization front and or just having a conversation versus everyone just idly uh, uh, streaming through their Facebook or what have you. So I get it. I think there's a there needs to be one single rule. Not every teacher left off to their own devices because that unlevel playing field just inevitably makes things worse. It always does. John, appreciate the time. Thanks for the call. My pleasure, and I hope it's heard on the hill. Okay, <laughs> Thank you. Bye, Sean. Bye-bye. Yeah, I mean, how easily distracted are you by your cell phone? Me? A lot. Let's go to line number three. Robert, you're on the air. Yeah, good morning, Patty. Morning to you. Long time ago. But that Lisa got evicted from apartment. The woman got evicted from apartment? She's in the middle of being evicted, yep. Yeah. I believe she's 82 years old in a wheelchair. Yeah. Some people say it might be because she's a smoker or whatever the case yeah. be, but yeah, but it's happening apparently. But it, 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 me, it, it, it's not fair. It's not fair. No, the children the, gave her an order of why. They got to get, get out. So they sort of told her. It does have a distinct air of unfairness about it. If I remember yeah. correctly, this is this is not the first time we've heard about this particular lady and her uh, living at, I think it's Riverhead Towers. So, yeah. you know, if she's in a wheelchair and smokes, apparently the smoking section is inaccessible for someone in a wheelchair. So yeah. if you're going to have that rule in place, then 
boy, you've really got to accommodate whoever in whatever circumstance to get to the smoking section. So anyway, it does come across as pretty heavy handed. No doubt about that. Yeah. 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 Now, Hello? is it a done deal? I don't know. I heard Ben talking about it on the morning show. I'm not sure whether that it's absolutely done or that's the the threat hanging over her head. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I should send Ben a very quick note when I pick up my cell phone during the news. <laughs> yeah, but well, 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 well it's, it's out there, you know. He's 82 years old. He's in the wheelchair, you know. You know in that way. Yeah, because I don't even know where she can turn. That's the you know the next level problem for her is, you know, you had a place where you were comfortable and I I assume yeah. happy enough. And now, if this happens, it's not that easy. Like, it doesn't matter how old you are, and your Absolutely. mobility issues. Even finding a place is extremely difficult in the city it at is. this moment. It is, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Okay. I appreciate the call, Robert. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Okay. All right. Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, hopefully Steve is there to talk about the application process to be a student at Munns Med School. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM, it's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. And welcome back to the show. Let's try line five again. Steve, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning, Steve. Paddy, uh, calling in regards to the application for students applying for med schools linked together with the shortage of doctors that we're, uh, we're encountering. There's okay. a lot of, uh, we see a lot of places closed down for a number of days because there's shortage of doctors. So my daughter wants to be in med school. She's got her bachelor. She's applying for med school. She's applied for two med schools one out of the province, one in the province, because she wants to get into the medicine field. There's such a challenge in that, in applying for it. She's met all the criterias with the NCAP, which is the major exam. They got it right. She got the marks. She got scholarships in high school. She's done volunteers. She's volunteering in the major hospital in St. John's with the autism kids at another place that I won't name. Uh, different things. She's got the marks coming with her bachelor that she'd done. And getting into med school is challenging. Where I'm going with this is there's thousands of students applying for med school, and I'll use one as an example, out of the province that she's applying for, there was 1,400 students wants to get into med school, 300 get picked for an interview, and there's only 40 students that actually get to go to med school. So what our government is doing now, what I'm understanding following the news, as we speak, they're in conferences regarding how to recruit doctors from other countries, which is a good thing, but what I, what I would like to see done, when regards to money, why can't the state and building a med school that'll accommodate two or 300 students, recruit professors that can come and teach our students that want to become med students, rather than trying to recruit doctors where we only get one, but if they recruited one professor, they can actually teach 50 students, so we got an outcome of 50 doctors, keeping in mind that it's going to take 12 years for that student to become a doctor. Yeah, it's an extremely competitive process to get into a medical school, not only at Mon, but anywhere. I, I think you identified the rub here, is that there will have to be also so much mentorship offered by 
uh, medical doctors themselves throughout the course of a med school uh, career, whether it be the four years officially in school and then all the other work residencies and uh, what have you that happened after that. So do we even have enough human resources to accommodate many more seats in the med school? I don't know the answer. I'm just putting it out there. The new, well, not the new, but the medical school at Dalhousie University. Is the biggest in Atlantic Canada, as far as I know. And it only has 94 seats for first-year students. They added 16 seats last year or maybe the year before. So there's got to be some formula that maybe you and I don't know the ins and outs of. But it just makes sense that if more and more people from this province, so there's, I believe, 80 seats at Munns Med School, 65 are for uh, students from Newfoundland and Labrador. If that was expanded, say, to 80 for our, our, our children or our students and then expand the school another 15 seats to come up with 95 very much like Dalhousie for international students whether they be from uh, around Canada or around the world you know it does make sense to me to expand that offering we did it in the registered nursing school which makes all the sense in the world we know full well that graduates who are born and raised in this province are much more likely to stay in the province so I think there's a good argument to be made interestingly Munns Med School has a standalone budget it is not part of the university at largest budget so you know all the focus on a law school what have you just imagine if all of that time and attention and focus and money was put to med school because I don't think we need a law school lawyers don't tell us that we need a law school no shortage of lawyers, no. but there's absolutely shortage of doctors. Yes, yes. And in, in other fields, Patty, as well, you don't hear talk of too much shortage in regards to engineers, teachers. There is somewhat a shortage, but teachers and engineers, it seems like we can we can manage to fill those positions over a period of time. But it seems like in the last number of years, months, it's a shortage of doctors, and it's going to get worse. So why not concentrate on building a med school if they want to invest money, get some of those younger students there. Like I know right now there's 3,000 students that apply for med school. Wouldn't that be fantastic if we could just get 1,000 of them? But it's going to take 12 years. If we recruit some doctors from other countries, that's going to be, you know, there are probably a lot of their time has already served in the medical field. You're going to get them for 10 years. My, da- my daughter is going to be 30 years old. You got my daughter for 20 or 30 years. Wouldn't it be more feasible to invest in a med school from the government's perspective? And my da- you just talked about on your, uh, your pre-talking there on open line about shortage of volunteers. My, da- my daughter volunteers at home. She's involved in medicine. The nurses have come in and certified her to help out in medicine. This is all volunteer work for her. You're going to lose a lot of this volunteer work now because my daughter can't afford to stay three or four years waiting to see if she's going to get in med school like other students that move on to something else. So, therefore, my daughter started out with this. Now, that's a doctor loss. My yeah. doctor meets all the criteria to get into med school, but can't get in. Yeah, it's the competition. Someone belonged to me who was as sharp as a tack, could not get yeah. into med school, eventually went on to law school. And uh, I guarantee you that that particular person would be a top-quality physician and would be here uh, practicing today. I appreciate the time, Steve. Thanks for this. Appreciate, appreciate you taking my call. Take care of yourself. You too, thank uh, you. All right, bye-bye. Yeah, I mean, identifying where the needs are is the role of any post-secondary institution, whether it be a vocational school or at the Marine Institute or, yes, Memorial University or whatever, Academy Canada. Let's go stick with Mon on line one. Tom, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning to you. You know, on that note, again, um, the challenge with more doctors is uh, more tests, more nurses, more ho- needing more hospitals. And, uh, you know, although... Although, obviously, everybody believes that's the solution, more medical people. 
you know, we need to think upstream and we need to think about prevention more and more and more. And I just wish that with every time someone spoke about spending, you know, we already spend $4 billion or so uh, in Newfoundland Labrador on health care, you know, and if you doubled all your health care people and maybe that might deal with how sick we are. I don't know where all the money would come from because a couple hundred million dollars more from the feds is only a drop in the bucket. Yeah, it costs more to be sick, though. It, it does. It's indisputable. If we have, for instance, if there's 136,000 people don't have a family doctor, the doctors themselves, who are already currently employed, they'll tell you quite clearly that that may lead to symptoms worsening. And so consequently, you have an advanced illness, which costs more to treat and may indeed see you hospitalized. All of those things cost more than we could ever pay doctors. So I do think, you know, having people without access to primary care makes us inevitably sicker and consequently much more costly to government. On some level, you're right, but also a lot of people die prematurely, which then the bucks, the spending stops. I mean, you know, that's just straight reality. Yeah, we can't be hoping to save money because people die. We don't hope to save money. It's not about saving money. It's just just reality. I mean, you know, we we have the sickest province, and we need to focus a lot on why we're the sickest province. It's not because we're not diagnosing obesity too soon or diabetes too soon. You know, it's because we don't take good enough care of ourselves and we don't have a culture of being healthy in this province. And we need to start there. Uh, everything else is, you know, in 10 years' time, when health court is, you know, if there's anybody still left here, um, that'll be great. But, you know, people can be healthier, you know, within a day of of starting to turn your life around. You'll start feeling healthy and your body will start to heal. I, mean, I don't want I don't want to beat it too much, but I do think it's disingenuous when politicians come on and scream at each other that they're not spending enough money or not hiring enough doctors. You know, they should lead with, come on, everyone, let's go out for a walk. Let's stop at our fundraisers or at our family, uh, at our at our fundraising events, let's, you know, or when we get together for our family days, let's stop having hot dogs and let's, let's just lead. I wish our politicians would lead more by example. And, and obviously there's a few politicians lately that have spent some time in hospital and I think they've seen the light, and I've heard people like Dave Brazel talk about making life changes. And um, you know, I just would call on everybody to look in your cupboards and look at your lifestyles and try and try and make better choices. Did you want to talk about Mon, Tom? I do. Okay, so um, you know, Mon is a challenge for all of us, and 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 I want to try and put some perspective out there because one of the challenges we're dealing with right now. I'm actually doing a university course, so I'm experiencing it firsthand. The prof that I'm taking a course from, I've done three courses since 2020, and uh, I've never seen the person. Um, Literally, I just interact with online uh, apps that I pay money to, and um, that person makes $130,000 a year. And um, the series of the offer that Mon just, that that the administration just made to the professors, and this is not coming down on one side or the other, but you know, a lot of people may or may not be aware of it. That um, the first year is a six percent raise. Yep. And um, it's difficult in a large organization just give six percent to one group. And and the other thing, in most parts of the public service, and and one is the same. When people get negotiate uh, arrangements downstream, and that's one of the reasons that um, the management at Mon was making up to 20% more than their than the average universities across the country was because when they during those years when the public service was getting those large raises um, they got it gets passed right up to management so you know we have you know we have 
uh, memorials management making a lot of money. So much so that they actually, any new hires will make up to 20% less money because they did a, an external review and realized that, that, that it was out of whack. But this 6% raise most likely will become a template for all other parts of MUN. You know, it's difficult to give people who make $130,000, $160,000 a 6% raise and turn around and look at your QP or Nate members or your managers and say, I'm sorry, or your administrative people and say, I'm sorry. They are like elite. So, you know, when you look at that, if that goes through the whole organization, um, because 65% of MUN's spending is salaries, that'll be an extra $24.9 million that MUN would have to come up with. And, and, and when you look at the fact that the hue and cry of all of us students when they raised tuition revenue by $14 million last year, so you're talking about over twice that, sorry, not almost twice that, just to be able to make up for these these increases. And the other thing that's really interesting is that if there are a lot of uh, uh, instructors who just do courses. They just get paid to do a course. And they only get like $5,300. And in one, to be a tenured professor or to be a professor period, they expect you to do between four and five courses a year. And that's a three-hour course. So there's three semesters. This is the winter semester. I heard you yesterday mention that it was fall a couple of times, but, but this is the winter semester right now. But, it, you know, if a professor a professor is required to do four to five courses, depending on their specialty, in a 12-month period, so not four or five each semester. And and they, they would get only $5,300. These, these ones would get paid being $5,300 and, and say, $5,700 that they get paid if they did. So so if they, do their, if they did five courses, they would make less than $30,000. But the average university prof makes, like, Hundred ten or whatever, hundred fifteen thousand, whatever it is. So, so, so a lot of that extra compensation is for research and and doing the the other work of of university profs. And and then you flip over to the big liabilities for our employees, which is the fact that their pension is significantly underfunded, and and that changes based on the performance of the stock market, like a lot of things do. So it's somewhere between a hundred million and three hundred twenty million. $29 million underfunded, depending on how optimistic you want to be and what the numbers are. And then they have very very generous, um, very generous post-employment benefits or, you know, they have life insurance, they have uh, accidental death and dismemberment, they have health insurance, they have dental, and they also have long-term disability, which is just baked in. And that liability, that unfunded liability, that means basically the responsibility of the university to pay for their employees going forward is is $278 million. And that went up $6 million. So, you know, so, you know everything is connected. And I just want to provide some context for everybody. Fair enough. I mean, there's nothing simple here. But uh, last word, and then I'll let you wrap it up if you like. I'm really at a bit of a loss as to how anyone sees this ending. If some of what's being demanded, like the Effect Association will say that it's not about money when in fact certainly part of it is about money but they say you know about a seat at the Board of Regents or at the Senate or what have you when no matter who you look to at Memorial University they don't have a standalone authority to do anything like that they have to approach the province and the province says they're willing to amend the Memorial Universities Act to have a full time seat for instance at the Board of Regents so if we're waiting for the province to do that before this ends we might be waiting a long time long enough to where whatever the fall or winter semester is lost that's where to you Tom yeah, I mean, I just, you know, as everybody focuses on quality of life, they still want to be able to maintain their 
spending quality of life. You know, so I just call everybody to think everything's connected. And if you really want to live in the most beautiful place in the world, then, you know, maybe you don't get to make as much money, but that's life. So let's come together and get the students back because we, God knows we need our students learning for the future. Just try coming for my money. <laughs> Thanks, Tom. Take care. All the best. Bye-bye. All right, break time. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go to line number three. Uh, Gary, you're on the air. Oh, hi, Patty. Hi. Uh, long time, no speak. <laughs> we Welcome had a, back. A, a year of uh, uh, pretty well Murphy's Law with uh, family issues. But anyway, I'm back, and uh, it's great to be back. And my first uh, thing I wanted to say was uh, my pass on my condolences to the, the family, belated condolences to the family of Bobby Hall and his family. And I think he was 83, which was uh, pretty ripe. He was 84, but yeah. Yeah, and uh, now he, I think he mastered the, the slap shot. That was Stan McKean that created it, as far as I know, on the same team. But Bobby Hull uh, capitalized on it, as far as, I, as far as I can remember. And uh, But anyway, I just wanted to pass my condolences because it's a, a loss to the, the, the hockey world. Now, uh, my dad's favorite team was uh, uh, Detroit because he loved Gordie Howe, Mr. Hockey. And I wear, still wear the hat the, 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 with the Detroit uh, Red Wings on it, right? And people say, are you a Red Wings fan? And I say, no, I wear and honor my father because he loved Gordie Howe. And who didn't? Mr. Hockey. <laughs> but uh, I think the relationship with that, Stan Makita and the slap shot is that be- the relationship between uh, Hall and Makita regarding the slapper wasn't that they were the first to ever take one, is that they those two in particular, they made it popular to have a curved blade or a much bigger curve on a blade. So as opposed to when we would take a blowtorch or put it over the element of the stove, they would yeah. make they'd soak the blade, they'd put it under a door, leave it overnight. It really did put a lot of pain on Hull slap shot, which I think back in the 60s was clocked at about 200 kilometers an hour. But he's a fascinating oh, player. I uh, He was the first player in the NHL to score more than 50 goals in a season. He scored 54 in 1966. But if you oh, talk yeah. about, you know, we're watching Ovechkin chase Gretzky here. In the NHL, Hall scored 610 goals. I can't remember how many assists. He and his son, Brett, are the only father-son duo to score over 600 goals. But then when he went to the WHA, which made huge news, combining the NHL and the WHA, Hall scored 913 goals in just over 1,470 games. So he could find the twine. Yeah, he's he's, he's a legend. He's all right. And uh, I I still uh, pass my condolences down to to his uh, family. And uh, hopefully uh, they may or may not get this message, but I hope so. But he grew up, I think Bobby Hull uh, grew up in Saskatchewan on a farm. I don't know if his family owned the farm, but uh, that's probably what gave him some strength. (laughs) Because it can be hard work. Oh, no, no question. He played 23 years in the league. He's top scorer in the NHL seven times. I mean, there's a lot about Hall. I had the pleasure of meeting Bobby Hall. I mean, he's, a, oh, he's, he's an interesting character off the ice, too. And not all of it's great, but I met uh, Bobby. I met his brother, Dennis. I uh, never yeah. met Brett, but uh, certainly Hall was larger than life. And one of the biggest stars of the day made huge news when he jumped from the Hawks to, yeah. the, uh, to the WHA. And he still is the yeah. top, the leading scorer in all, of all time. In Chicago, on the goals front, anyway, with 604. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that, that, that one other thing I wanted to mention is uh, about our doctor shortage, and I'll be quick. Uh, when it comes to the doctor shortage, I don't know if this strategy has ever been tried, but uh, we have uh, doctors here from abroad 
uh, since the beginning of time, probably. And uh, some from foreign countries, some from Canada, from some from wherever. But the doctors themselves, uh, whether it was via a conference or uh, studying with a, a di- in a different area, uh, they must have created a certain rapport with uh, many of the, the other doctors they met. So I don't know if the strategy, but if we can get the doctors themselves, I don't know if it has been tried. Uh, to uh, if they can get in touch with these people and tell them and persuade them that Newfoundland, uh, you know, the, the, the official culture of the planet, uh, uh, it's a great place to practice medicine. And I don't know if the doctors uh, have ever, or that's ever been tried, but if the doctors know how to, it's because they must have developed uh, some form of rapport with uh, people they've studied with or uh, have met at conferences or whatever area. So if the doctors could, uh, if this strategy has never been tried. I would imagine word of mouth is a sell on every front from tourism to recruiting any type of business organization and yes, healthcare worker. I can't imagine it's been left aside, but yeah. Anyway, anything else you want to say this morning, Gary? That's about the size of it for now, Patty. Appreciate the time. I wish you a great year. Not just a day. A day is too short. (laughs) Thanks a lot, man. We'll talk to you, man. Appreciate it. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, haul out the door. Uh, whatever you want me to do here, Dave, it's a little bit tight to the 10 o'clock hour. Should I take another call, David, before I go to the news? Dave's on the phone with someone, so I'll just make up my own mind. Uh, so Peter's there. Appreciate the patience. He wants to talk about mackerel. And, you know, there was a huge disconnect last year regarding mackerel fishery here. It was shut down in full, full-on moratorium. While we have an agreement with and we share a mackerel stock with the United States, they did indeed curb their total allowable catch last year, but they were fishing for mackerel. But us, no. So that was money left in the water. It had an impact on how much people were spending on bait. So that one has been a matter of concern. And even when brought, you know, some of the facts of the matter, not just anecdotal evidence and what people are seeing on the water, because mackerel is one of those interesting species. You'd need to be a professional fish harvester to recognize when the mackerel are in. They are teeming right at the surface of the water, so you can see them with the naked eye from quite a distance because that's how mackerel present themselves in the bay. But, yeah, we share a stock with the states. They were fishing it, and we weren't. Now, precautionary principle and knowing full well that, you know, there is some measure of impact on stock. It's not the number one issue, but how much we take in commercial fisheries is part of the conversation. But, you know, sometimes that air on the side of caution maybe goes a bit too far. It seems like that was the case with Macworld last year. And then we're going to talk about... Uh, Josh wants to talk about light and power, so be it. And then we're going to talk more about education. And there's a most recent anniversary with the liberation of Auschwitz. We'll tackle that. And then we'll speak with you on the topic of your choosing. Don't go away. Join Brian Medor weekdays at noon for a comprehensive update on news from every corner on all levels. Newsmakers, weather, and more. Join us on your VOCM at noon. Welcome back. Let's go line number two. Peter, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning to you. Um, what I wanted to talk about was uh, the macro license uh, seen at the uh, DFO, the federal government, uh, declared a moratorium on, uh, on macro in Canada. Well, uh, there's a country right adjacent to it. You know, to the best of my knowledge, they're still fishing away, you know, like a, and I don't know if there should be a, a moratorium on it, but uh, a lot of fishers don't believe that it should be. But having said that, now that there is a moratorium, when I filled out for my license uh, in 2023, 
well, I noticed a difference in the price. And uh, and the license that I'm talking about, that I'm talking about, that, that I hold, that, which mostly takes in uh, all Newfoundland and Labrador and, uh, and, and, and the Gulf, right? Uh, it, it's mobile, and uh, you can move around to different NAFO areas in, in, uh, in Newfoundland and Labrador. So uh, it's, a, it's a restricted license. And uh, there's other licenses, too, for mackerel, like for fixed gear. That would be, you'd be able to fish that with nets, I guess, if you wanted to, or traps, or even uh, you could fish it, uh, well, the most pe- way people would fish it today, I, I would think, is uh, it's probably with uh, toxane, the same as persane, but on a smaller scale. You understand? I think so. And, uh, well, anyway, uh, DFO says that they're not going to issue any licenses to the people that hold those licenses, and they won't take your money. And, you know, I, I've talked to a lot of f- harvesters who own those licenses, and they would prefer that, you know, like, they took their money, uh, the $100 for this uh, per se macro, and uh, that would show up on their front page with their enterprise number and all the rest of their licenses every every year. And, uh, you know, like, instead of the trusting DFO to hold on to it for you, you know, uh, we don't trust them. In the past, there's been changes made to uh, restricted licenses like scallop, uh, myself included. Uh, uh, you know, there was areas changed on, on that scallop license over the past number of years. And if you weren't reading through it all the time, well, it just passed by, like, like the French Quarter, stuff like that. People would move that of that without knowing it. And then, you know, there was a salmon back in, uh, in John Crosby day. You know, you could uh, hold on to your license or you could sell it back to the government. And uh, But you held on to it, and all of a sudden, like, you couldn't renew it anymore. So, and if, if there was, say, on Capelin, if there was a moratorium on Capelin tomorrow, you know, would they hold on to that one too? And on and on it goes, you know. Peter, like, what does that mean, hold on to it? So that just well, means... Well, they're going to basically hold it with DFO for the, the fisher. And if that moratorium is on for 10 years, it would cost me basically uh, $1,000 for to... Uh, if they would send it out to me, which would be a small amount for a license that's high in value and... Uh, and can you know, like in bad or good times, it can kind of be a good tribute to your to your income. But uh, like we don't just trust DFO like to hold on that license for us. Uh, I'd rather personally send me out the license if they don't want to take me money, put it on the front page of my enterprise macro license, and then attach conditions to it, saying very simple, one line or two at the most. Uh, more, uh, no quota available due to moratorium, but there would be my macro license on that page. And how hard could that to be to do? You know, so that that's what we're asking government. I contacted Charles Rogers' office. I was talking to Barb Cran. I was talking to another lady, Julie Sparks, yesterday, and uh, put my point forward as DFO uh, employee. And when I'm talking about DFO, I'm not talking about the employees. I'm talking about the federal government that changes fishery ministers almost as often as I change me socks. Well, not that often, but we do know that they're going to change uh, 
probably two, if not three times in uh, one four-year period. So whether it's Liberal or PCs, it doesn't really matter. Like, we just, we're after being dealt bad hands before. So I want my license, and many other fish harvesters want their license on the front page of their enterprise. Just uh, out of ignorance, what does on the front page of your enterprise mean? All my licenses, uh, the vessels that I own, uh, and their... uh, and all the fees and everything like that, because that's where I noticed it wasn't there when there was $100 cheaper this year than it was last year. So, like, believe me, Patty, I'm not speaking just for myself. There's a lot of, most harvesters across Newfoundland and Labrador, like I said, is mobile, and as uh, you can go various areas, want this license attached to their license. Uh, we don't want DFO holding that, banking it, or holding on to it for us. Neither would you want your capable license. Uh, and there's other licenses that uh, the steer that's restricted license, but they're also mobile too. But uh, hearing is basically based on your own, uh, own NAFO area that you're fishing in. But, you know, those other two are mobile around uh, Newfoundland and Labrador. So, uh, you know, like, uh, it's an important license. And I want it back, and that's what I'm saying. And I can't see why I had to learn it the way that I did. You know, about not uh, not renewing it for me. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I understand your concern here. And you know, it, on stuff like this, administrative stuff, it kind of doesn't really matter who the minister of the day is, whether it be Joyce Murray or anybody else, because if we have rules that are straight up administrative issues, then the ministers would come and go, and these things would just continue on, regardless of who's sitting in the minister's uh, seat. So I'm pretty sure I understand where you're coming from here this morning, Peter. Would you like to say anything else? Yes, uh, having said that, uh, I hope I I made myself clear. I I would just like to speak a little bit about uh, CNL. Uh, CNL is is not a union, uh, as we know, and there's roughly around 3,300, 3,300 enterprise owners here in uh, in Newfoundland and Labrador. And uh, I I really got a a lot of respect for the organization. And... uh, there's a convention coming up on the 25th of February, and uh, it's for enterprise owners only. And uh, yeah, anybody can come, as far as I know, but only uh, people that vote as enterprise owners, and the only one can run for different things. And uh, CNL is after doing a, a lot for enterprise owners since it was formed. And uh, it's got a blog there, and I get up and I read the VOCM news and uh, what have you. And, well, you know, the same thing. Like, I get the fishery news from uh, CNL. I know what's going on, good or bad. Uh, Like this morning I got up and I went in there, and uh, we we find out that uh, there's uh, Jeff Loader has been named uh, the director of uh, ASP, Association of Seafood Processors. And, uh, you know, that'll be the person that's doing the negotiation on behalf of the plants for for different species, uh, especially crab, I guess, and shrimp. But, uh, and there's a a whole lot of other things, like CNL works uh, one-on-one with individual cases uh, in in conjunction with DFO. And, uh, you know, one thing about them, like, uh, they're they're, uh, very discreet and... uh, you know, if you're working one-on-one, uh, you can pretty well sure that, uh, you know, 
your secrecy is uh, your privacy is well respected, and uh, I'm not a part of it. Only a member. I paid. A, I'm a paid up member, and uh, and I would encourage every other person uh, with an enterprise to uh, join a also. Like and they're working on certain things, like trying to get better prices. Uh, in hard times for, uh, I think, fuel, uh, emergency equipment, uh, I don't know, what have you, you know, like, uh, but uh, the more to join, and when you approach a company, well, you know, the better price that you're going to get. And uh, not a lot of money, I think it's in the vicinity of somewhere $250, dollars or something like that, you know, for an enterprise. Uh, and you get constantly updates and you get all the news that's going on in the fishery and uh, on and on she goes but um, I, I just like to say you know like I think it's really really worthwhile if CNL wasn't around the harvesters in Newfoundland and Labrador basically know about what's going on in the fishery that they knew before the uh they were formed because uh, we don't get a whole lot of information. We get a, a union farm sometimes with a whole lot of pictures in it, and uh, the same pictures over and over for the most part. And uh, but that's not really what fishermen want, you know. Like uh, there's more news on fishery in the Navigator from Trinav than uh, than uh, than we get otherwise. But uh, CNL is a it's legit. And we should uh, take advantage, and I think we should build on it and and make it our association rather than uh, depending on someone else to tell you after the fact that it's done, you know? And uh, I really thank you for taking me time this morning. I, I hope uh, Jeff Loader is uh, fair and... Uh, and I hope he'll come up with better prices than Derek Butler did, because that's who he replaced if for the people that don't know. And uh, but uh, anyway, Petty, uh, if there's something you like to ask me, it's okay. And if not, well, you know, like uh, I'll, I'll just go on. But it's not a one-man organization. C- CNL is not. Yes, I know. I speak with Ryan here on the program, and Jason Sullivan's been on. We talked about these issues. Merv has been on as well, so I'm familiar with what they're doing at CNL. I do have to get to the break, and I appreciate the time, Peter. Listen, Patty, I appreciate yours and all the best. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, let's go ahead and take that break. When we come back, we're talking education with the PC member for CBS. Where, no, where is Barry the member for? Barry's the member for, yeah, Conception Bay South, and he's the Shadow Minister of Education. Don't go away. Right, welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number seven. Say good morning to the PC member for CBS. He's the opposition critic for education. That's Barry Petten. Good morning, Barry. You're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. How are you? Not too bad. How about you? I'm good, thanks. Great. Yeah, Pat. Yeah, Patty. I just want to have a couple of words about the ongoing, the one strike. I guess the ongoing ones in the second day. And I guess before I uh, pass along my comments, I guess I want to uh, send my best wishes out to uh, Minister Haggy, who's, as we found out today, is taking a medical leave. So we wish him all the best. And I speak on behalf of our caucus and uh, wish him uh, well, well in his health recovery. And uh, we're thinking about him. As do uh, I. It's the second time in recent memory that a cabinet minister has to take some time. Uh, minister Crocker with an emergency surgery. And, of course, even inside of your your party, uh, Mr. Parrott had some uh, health concerns and a procedure done in the recent past. So, yes, we wish Minister Haggy a speedy recovery. 
Yes, absolutely, Paddy, no doubt. Uh, but on the strike uh, issue, Paddy, I know we're, we're you know we're in the early days, of, but I mean we were. T- I guess this was in the media for a lot for the last number of weeks. No, I guess no shock to anyone. There's a lot of there's a lot of coverage on it. I know on a personal level, my own daughter's been experienced. She's a month student, and a lot like a lot of others. So it's not new to us, but you know. You know, students were told, I guess, recently, you know, they're, they're with this, you know, strike, I mean, there's lots of issues out there, but I mean, their courses were paused, there'll be no refunds, basically, you're going to sit, put, you know, sit putting thousands of students in limbo, and this doesn't seem to be much direction given by MON, by the leadership at MON, by government of any form, I mean, ultimately, I mean, the minister is off, but, I mean, we have other ministers available in there to take the issue, I mean, ultimately, the premier could deal with it, or any other of these ministers. There doesn't seem to be much direction being given or much solace, I guess, provided. And, you know, part of the reason, I guess, other than the fact, I mean, I'm, I am the shadow minister for education and this is, you know, important, a huge issue. But one of the, I guess, one of the issues that drove me to really want to call you this morning, too, was, you know, last evening I had a, I had an email, actually, from a nursing nursing student uh, at Mont. It was an impassioned email, actually. It was one of the emails. You read a lot of emails, but this this young lady was really passionate about the situation she's in. She may not get to graduate this spring. You know, she had a job lined up. And I mean, basically, in a nutshell, at the end of the, end of the email, she was pleading with me and my colleagues and also government to all of us politicians to try to lobby, you know, to see an end to this strike. Because, I mean, she was, she, you know, she's very upset. And I, and I get it. I mean, like, I think I spoke to you before last week. I mentioned my own daughter's in the same limbo. She's supposed to congregate in May. And, you know, you're hearing from, so I know personally, so, I mean, and I shared my, you know, I, I sympathize with, I sympathize with all the students at Brexit, Patty, but I think there, you know, there's there's ways around, you know, I mean, the strikes are strikes. We don't know how long it's going on for a long time, but just the things could be done. I mean, I think the better communication is one start, but I think government, you know, government has a role to play too. I mean, ultimately we own the university. It's, it's our university. It's the people's university, more University of Newfoundland and Labrador. And, you know, and we're hearing about one of his clauses in there about the, the, the faculty uh, a month of wanting to see on the, at the, you know, board of reasons or the Senate. They want a voice. And now they've come back and asked government to review the MON Act. Well, Patty, the answer will dictate 2001. I was asking that same question to, well, the current minister, again, now Minister Osborne, but he was, when we were debating at the House, house I was asking, where would we do with the MON Act? Are we bringing it in this fall? And, what have you? And here we are now in February, pretty well February of 2023, and it's still not not in sight. And I don't expect to see it this spring because usually that's a monetary session, so we might even look at the fall. So, you know, it's a lot of inaction on government's part, and I mean, it, it bears repeating. We've seen it happen last week with the, with the ambulance issue. I mean, this that wasn't new; that was kicked around forever. Finally, you know, when everything everything got, went sideways, Friday everything was fine. Saturday, all of a sudden, we had that. We, I was getting called as house leader. They were having an emergency sitting on Monday morning. So a lot of things change in 12, 24 hours. And I guess the same thing I'm seeing around here. I mean, we say it, we say it over and over again. I know our leader, Dave Browse, I hear him say it a lot, and I use it a lot too. I mean, they're, they're not being proactive. They're being reactive to everything. And here we are sitting up, sitting down again. We're seeing things unfold. You had a review and putting this clause or changing the Monarch. But shouldn't the Monarch already be done? Shouldn't this already be? Like, are we always chasing the issue? And... You know, and it's cold comfort, I guess, to the thousands of students that are that are right now in total limbo. They don't know where to. We got you know months are out on the pick line. They're fighting for what they believe in and, and go down them. But there doesn't seem to be that leadership or that you know stepping up, somebody stepping up and 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 you know and and I suppose being the adult in the room, if you want to call it for want of a better word, and speaking up and you know and and giving some comfort to students. I guess parents too, to the public, to everyone. Because I mean. 
You know, we can tell the government got a lot of responsibility, but we're dealing with worker shortages, skilled trade shortages. This is our, our school of higher education. We have a month, we have a healthcare crisis, we have the nursing school, everything is paused. So the sub, it's a full gamut of things they're padding, and, and I'm not hearing nothing other than the fact that they're on strike and they've asked for the you know, government to look at this uh, this clause in the Monex. And I, I just think that I think there needs to be better communication, and I think, there needs to, I think this stuff should be, you know, if it's big issues, and we're, you know, want to drag this on too long, a week or two is too long, Patty. So I think they need to, you know, sooner rather or later, get to the table and try to get try to get this worked out because it's for the betterment yeah. of everyone, obviously. Sure. Um, hard to know where to begin, but, you know, the MONFA, the Faculty Association, has been very clear here. They say that it's not a lot about money. Okay, there's one way to put that to the test, because the 6% in the first year is a pretty big raise when we're talking about uh, the same template being offered to lecturers, professors, course instructors at MON, as we've seen in other areas of the public sector, but this far outweighs that. 12% salary increase over four years, 20 additional weeks of supplemental parental leave. If they're going to focus on the relationship with the administration, and the collegial governance, what have you. The university apparently has approached the provincial government for the amendment that allows for one full-time seat on the Board of Regents for someone from the Faculty Association. If government does that quickly, we'll know whether or not that was the be-all and end-all as currently being described by the Faculty Association. And I'm not a member. I don't know exactly what every single member of the 800 think. But if government can get into the legislature, put an essential services tag on private ambulance operators, then you think in an effort to resolve this one, if their only move and their only role here is to deal with that one governance issue, we should be able to do that sooner than later, even in a monetary sitting of the House of Assembly. There's lots of ways that we can walk and chew gum. Absolutely, Patty. And, uh, and like we've called for it. I mean, like I said, the, the documents, you know, the, the minutes show that we've been asking for this act. But I believe, Mon, in fairness, I mean, we've talked about Mon a lot. Myself and you have talked about it, and I've been very vocal on it as well. Mon is a wonderful, beautiful, you know, it's one school where I, where I should be proud of, but there's a lot of areas that need to be improved there. And the Mon Act is outdated, as we know, in a lot of other areas. So this is one small piece. I mean, you're going to piecemeal one one clause. I don't think it's, I totally agree. I mean, it's not, not that's not insurmountable by no means. But you got to start talking and, I mean, pick up the phone, call someone. Like, there needs to be more interaction. So, other say we're looking at it, we're thinking about it, whatever. And all the while, everything just stays by the wayside. And, no, and there's no communication, Patty. It's very, it's a very poor line of communication that Mon in general has with its, with its students and with the public. It's, it, it is a poor. And, I mean, i got to call a spade a spade. And government could even help the cause there by pushing. Like there's, there's all kinds of things that we would not see, me and you or the public would not see. But there's a lot of things government can do beyond the scenes to get, to get the ball rolling in the right direction. I mean, this, this clause, no doubt, that's, that could be done pretty quickly in the house, I and mean, we'd be well, more than welcome. We'd go and sit down tomorrow. Do you want to bring it in? We'll debate it tomorrow. No problem. But, but the, the communication needs to be better, Patty. And I think that's one of the big things. And all, in my mind, I've always said everything starts with communication, and when you got no communication and no dialogue things just spiral out of control. Appreciate the time, Barry. Thanks, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. That's Barry Fetton, the PC member for CBS and opposition critic for education. Let's go to line four. Joshua, you're on the air. Hello? Line number four, Joshua, you're on the air. Oh, hello, hello, Patty. Hello. Uh, this is Josh. Uh, I, I can't hear you. Oh, uh, yeah, do I have to be off speakerphone? Yes, please. Okay. Uh, can you hear me now? I can hear you better. Okay, right, man. Uh, I wanted to call in about Leighton Powell, but I uh, I wanted to call in about CYFS, too. I, uh, my girlfriend emailed you about it not that long ago, and um, we never got a response back because you're busy, I guess. Just but, say that uh, again? You emailed me what, sorry? 
about uh, about CYFS and about uh, CYFS trying to get doctors to come into our house and uh, look at what's going on in the environment. Well, not CYFS. Doctors are trying to get CYFS in the house and for a medical reason. And we're telling them that that's not a medical reason. You're going to have to do tests on them. And they're automatically assuming that it's our fault automatically before even doing any tests on them. They haven't done any tests on them. They won't even look at me. They're telling me to walk out the door. They won't take a checkup on me to see if there's anything wrong with me. I mean, there could be something genetic in him that's wrong with me. I don't know anything and about this. So you say you sent, sent you, who we sent, sent you pictures. We sent you pictures. And who sent me pictures? My girlfriend, Courtney Ellis. So if I if I go go search through my email, it's for Courtney Ellis. You said. Yep. There's okay. There, my baby, and everything. I have. But anyway, oh, I'm yes, not wasting I, my time at that. Okay. I want to I want to talk about something else. Right. I want to talk about how my father was the one that called in on me. Now my father called in on me for my first kids. I got twins, a girl and a boy, and my father called in on me for them. And he told them that I was this and I was that because I was in jail and all this kind of stuff. And they wouldn't let me around my twins for eight years. I've still never laid eyes on them. My father ended up doing something to them and he got charged. I don't want to talk about what it is, but he got charged with it. Now he's the one that called in about this baby and they're taking his word right to the fullest after they knows that he is a whatever he is and they knows it and they're taking his word to the fullest trying to get doctors to tell us because we got this piece of paper signed saying that we care about our child that's it that's all it is saying we care about our child nothing else just saying we care about our child so now the doctors are saying that that because we cares about our child that we got to get a cyfs worker to come in our house or we don't care about them they're blackmailing us and everything to get a cyfs worker in the house saying that it's medical reason that a cyfs worker needs to look and see if, the, if he needs to take any meds. How can a CYFS worker find out if he needs to take any meds? A CYFS worker is not qualified to find out that. He's supposed to do tests on him for that. Okay, and so he, have you exactly brought... what he said. He said, if I got to be giving him meds, if I got to be giving him meds, he said, I don't want to give him meds with his father in the house. So he's automatically assuming that I'm going to do the drugs. Have you taken your child to the doctor to be diagnosed as to whether or not there's a medication for one thing or another required? That's this is who's telling us to bring the workers in. They won't do the tests. We're bringing them to the doctor, saying that 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 they're saying he's not growing, but he is. He's growing fine. He's on cereals and everything now, and it, they're saying he's not growing fine. Just one doctor saying he's not growing fine. This pediatrician and Gander, they're saying that he's not growing fine at all. He's not growing good, and he wants to get a worker in the house to find out why he's not growing, and maybe he needs some meds. And if he's got to take meds, then Josh got to get out of the house if he's got to take meds because he don't want Josh around if he's got to give him medication. And he's and he's and he's like bluntly telling us all this in the room. He's bluntly telling us that you got to get this worker in the house because it's a medical reason. Now that's not a medical reason. And I just wanted to let it out there to let people know that if you get CYFS to come to your door, do not sign any papers and don't even let them in. You don't even have to let them in. You just got to let them see the baby once a month. Unless you got a case, don't let them in because you're going to get a case. Now they're telling me that my case is going to get closed, but they want to take a look around the house one last time to see if they're going to close it. That's just going to open up a new case. So, so I'm going to let the people know, don't go going in line with them like that. 
and they tried they they tried to get my girlfriend's mother and her into it. My, my girlfriend and her mother has never been into a fight in their lives, and they tried to get everybody they tried to get everybody in the family into it with each other. And all this kind of stuff to, to, to try to make it look like you're the one that's causing fusses with everybody when it goes to the court. And I just want to let the people know that that's what they do and that's what they're up to. And they're not there to help somebody. My father molested my first kids. And there they are now taking his word when they cause again and going to let him see my other kid and they don't want me around them. And here he is now listens to jigs and reels with me every weekend and stuff, listens to open line. And he's there laughing with me, carrying on with me. He loves me right to death. If, if, if he lost his dad, I know he'd be upset. He'd probably forget about me eventually because he's just a baby. But r- right now, at first, he's going to be really upset. And I don't think that I deserve to not even know the reason of why I lost my kids the first time. Well, fair enough. And I'm, not sure. and I'm not sure what happened there. But if there, oh, is, here, if there is an issue with the child now in the home that the, the rate of growth is not on the chart and there might be a problem. Oh, it's on the chart. Fine. So see, that's the problem. Okay. But if someone says there's a growth-related matter, don't you want to find out whether or not there is? Yeah, but the, the, there's doctors in New Orleans telling us that he's growing fine. It's just that one doctor in there looking at his growth chart and saying that it's not fine. And then the others are doctors are saying, I don't know what he's getting on with. And then they're saying, they're in, they're, there's doc, the doctors in New Orleans, they're, they're fine. But they're saying that they're getting child protection workers calling them and telling them. My first cousin is a CYFS worker and everything, and she's calling them and everything, my first cousin. that, that That's my father's niece. And like this is why they're going along with my father, because my father got 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 nieces and nephews in CYFS, and they're going along with him. And here he is, a child molester. I can't make heads or tails of that, to be honest with you. I mean, that that's not right for that organ. Are, are they there to protect kids, or do they just say child protection to cover up what they're really doing? Because I and now with that, I got to say something else. I got removed from my home when I was a child. And I was in foster care and stuff, and they couldn't find me. I took off and everything. They couldn't find me for years. They don't know what they're doing. If it wasn't for them, I wouldn't have never even ended up in jail. I ended up in jail. I had a hard life and everything because of them. Them. They're the ones that did it to me. Uh, like I told them, I said, I should have been one of them babies that you buried. Because when I start talking, you guys are not going to want me to talk. I got a lot of secrets about him that I've kept him for years, and there's a lot more to it that I just don't want to be talking about it, right, Patty? Because there's a lot of time and stuff, and like a lot of it, like it might be just me gibbering off a lot of it because I'm ranting and stuff. But like most of it is like right on the dot, man. Like what they're doing is wrong. Like they, they're coming in saying that I'm not a father material, but they've never given me the chance to be the father material. But my father is. He's molesting them. He's molesting them. So was, was, okay, hold on. Was, so was he investigated and charged and convicted? I'm not sure if he was convicted, but I do know that he was charged. But they were trying to keep it from me. My grandmother told my girlfriend before she died. But I knew he was charged. I knew he was charged. But I didn't know what exactly it was that he'd done. And when I found out what it was exactly he'd done, he'd done the same thing to me. He'd done the same exact thing to me, and he tried to tell our teachers and stuff in school that I was a liar. And CYFS took me for being a bad kid when he was doing all this stuff to me. And now they're trying to take him away from me for being a bad father and let him have him. 
it's all very troubling and yeah that and, is you know it. in these cases i never know exactly what's going on it's impossible for me to know exactly what's going yeah, on but anyway i hope that it works out especially for the child i mean yeah if like, there's Eddie, a I, don't, I didn't knew you wouldn't going to be able to do anything like, i just wanted to get my story out there and that's all i'm about I didn't, I didn't expect you to do anything i just wanted to tell it you know well i'm glad you had an opportunity to do it yeah. josh and wish I you and your family well and patty my body i don't mean to be buttoning in there i'm i'm but, i'm, I'm really right. a good guy i just i just I'm sorry, okay, man? No sweat. You take good care of yourself, you and your family. Thanks, Patty, man. Okay, Joshua. Uh, Joshua, bye-bye. Uh, I mean, it's very difficult to deal with child youth and family services-related issues. It just is, uh, for every reason imaginable. All right, appreciate the patience of those in the queue. Don't go away. We're coming back to speak with you. Don't go away. Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. Welcome back. Okay, let's go. Line number eight. Colin, you're on the air. Morning. According to you. Good, thanks. I want to talk about uh, uh, last week on uh, January 27th was International Holocaust Remembrance Day, which is also the anniversary of the liberation of the Auschwitz-Birkenau Nazi concentration camp in Poland. Uh, it was liberated by the Soviets, the Soviet Army. Uh, during the Vistula Order Offensive. Yeah. 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 It's, uh, you know, it, it, it's uh, rather prescient, I think, given the times that we're in now, especially within what's going on in Eastern Europe, to uh, to remember what happened during World War II and the, uh, the evil that was brought upon the world by the Nazi regime. The Third Reich is responsible for... Uh, the start of World War II, and, and by some estimates, over 50 million people died in that war. Uh, six million Jews died in the concentration camps, and uh, millions of other people, uh, communists and trade unionists and homosexuals and others. It's just uh, indiscriminate evil that took place uh, during that war. And uh, I just wanted to... Uh, Pay my respects to all the people who died. Well, the numbers are massive, though. So when the Red Army made its way into Auschwitz, I think there were still 500 prisoners alive at the time. The estimate in excess of a million were killed just in that camp alone as part of the Nazis' final solution, as they refer to it. And you talk about the overall death toll number and mentions of the Red Army. And, of course, Americans who are... They take. They go to great lengths to uh, write American history with great bravado and uh, self-importance. You know, the Red Army. I think Russia lost some 27 million people in the Second yes, World War, is. and very yeah. much responsible, I think, for bringing the war to a conclusion. So, yeah, the Auschwitz and those stories, and those pictures, are just simply horrific. And it's uh, it's almost hard to believe it ever happened, even though it obviously did. And I'm not going to be so foolish as to go down the road of any of the denialism that we see around. And now at the the exact same time here we are in 2023 and anti-semitism is on the rise again yeah it's uh it's like history repeating you know and, and if you tie that into what's happening in uh, in ukraine now with uh, putin and uh he's uh invasion of ukraine uh was for the uh denazification of ukraine you know so you, you got to have a scapegoat or you got to have some sort of pseudo theme to launch the invasion that's what these thugs do like putin 
and Hitler, Hitler and his final solution, you know, uh, make the Jewish people uh, the scapegoats uh, for for his aggression and for the war that he started. And, uh, you know, we as you, as you said, uh, we have the people who are in denial of the Holocaust, that this never happened. This is not an editing of history. This is a denial of history. You know, what, what happened in those concentration camps and what Hitler did uh, altered the course of history uh, even to this day. You know, uh, we're still feeling the effects of, of, of what he did, him and, and his goons. And, uh, you know, I, I think uh, what's even uh, uh, as bad as the denial of the Holocaust are people like Kanye West who admire Adolf Hitler. You know? Well, there's a celebration of uh, Hitler and Nazism in the Third Reich, and the flags still fly in certain corners of the world, as demented as it is. Uh, it's uh, really hard, hard to know what to say about this. You know, you, you have people like West, uh, financially wealthy but intellectually insolvent. Uh, you know, I just I just don't understand. Uh, he doesn't understand. You have an African American man who was born and raised in the United States. You don't understand the concept of racism. People have never been racist towards you. You know, if Adolf Hitler had a chance, he would have put a bullet in your head in a New York minute. And you admire evil? The thing about evil, if you admire it, it will embrace you too. And it'll put you on a, on a cattle car to a concentration camp, and you too will be exterminated. Because it's indiscriminate, right? Oh, boy. You know, we got to talk about this. This is, you know, this is stuff that uh, that uh, a lot of people who don't want to talk about. Uh, we're denying history here. So what's next? We're going to deny that uh, the American Air Force dropped two atomic bombs on uh, Imperial Japan in August of 1945. That never happened either, right? It's all a hoax. Unfortunately, it did, and we still measure a variety of things based on uh, levels uh, coming from that bomb, those bombs. I appreciate the call, Colin, as traumatic as the conversation and the issues are, but so be it. The final word to you. You know, we, we had to realize that uh, this was a world war that was started by the Third Reich. The Nazis had their U-boats off the coast of Newfoundland firing torpedoes at merchant Navy ships and military, uh, you know, Navy uh, ships. And uh, a lot of people died. And if the Nazis had to put boots on the ground on this island, they would have used this island as a staging camp for an invasion of continental North America. They would have killed everybody here. They would have set, set up concentration camps here, too. And they came very close. We need to remember that. Well, the only strike of any armaments or military weapons in the Second World War was Lanskov over on Bell Island, yeah. which is yeah. fascinating. Uh, Colin, I appreciate the time. Thank you. Cheers. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye now. All right. Uh, there's one more before the break. Uh, line number two, caller, you're on the air. How you doing, Patty? Okay, you? Listen, them two phone calls you just had, I don't know how you can keep going. <laughs> the last two phone calls you had. No problem. I got the... Uh, boy, you're pretty good. You got to be good. Anyway, I'm, uh, the reason I'm calling is that... Uh, I don't know where to start. I'll try to make it as brief as I can. Uh, it seems like people are pretty good at holding their cards close to their chest. And the reason I mean by that is that... Uh, here in St. John's, uh, there's a doctor leaving to go to Fogo. Uh, it's been announced. Uh, I got a letter about at least a month ago from my local uh, doctor that uh, she's leaving and uh, gone for good to Fogo. She got a roster of 2,800 patients, and we all got letters. 
and we're also going to receive a second letter. Now, I'm surprised that the mayor of uh, Fogo had been on, Eugene Nippert had been on, Noah had been on, everybody holding their cards close to their chests because they know that, anyway, I decided to come on the air to let the, well, I don't like to say cat out the bag, to let it out the bag, that we are all frustrated the fact that all our uh, all the good and all the years we've done with this doctor, exceptional doctor, uh, she's in her, well, anyway, in her early 60s, she's gone, and I know she's not getting the package. So we're, we're thinking about starting up a GoFundMe page to try to keep her here because we the two doctors that she works with, Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there. Well, they're not they're not going to be holding their cards very close to their chest because as soon as we come back from the break, the Mayor Andrew Shea yep. of, of Fogo is the next caller in the queue. Exactly. I know that. Yeah, but you know why? No. That's only because he knows that I was coming on the air. How would he know that? Well, well okay, well, I'll let you figure that out with Dave. That's not a mystery now because I said to Dave that I didn't want to come on the air to, to cause a fuss, but we're all, up, we're, all, we're all upset because over the last couple of months, even you've been saying, not against you now, but even you've been saying that if they're taking doctors from St. John's and transporting them out with locums and this and that, whatever, well, they're robbing Peter to pay Paul. So we were thinking about that she must be getting some package, and did you notice that you haven't heard nothing from Eugene Nipper, nothing from the mayor until they knew that the mayor Fogo, till I was going on the air. So I'd say that she must be getting an ambulance, an air ambulance from Gander every weekend. Well, no, she's actually going to live out there. So she must be getting free perks from the ambulance, air ambulance from Gander, uh, uh, the ambulance itself, and she must be staying at Zeta Cobbs down there. Got to be. So we were thinking about starting up a GoFundMe page to try to keep her here because her doctors, the two doctors that she's working with, they're not taking on, on any of her patients. And her last week is here in St. John's, right in the middle of St. John's. I'm not allowed to say, well, I don't want to say what her name is or what the practice is because I'm afraid of getting in trouble. But when you get to the mayor on, I, I hope you got a little sticky note there. Uh, no disrespect, but I hope you got a sticky note there and ask what perks is she getting because we were going to start a GoFundMe page. To right, but to I'm not even it. sure he would know the answer to that question, you know. Cause oh, the, you, they must know, Patty. But the mayor doesn't sign contracts with doctors, though. I mean, uh, for instance, if I was the doctor making my way to Fargo Island, it would be pretty important to me that any perk or any bonus or my uh, my entire package of remuneration has nothing to do with the mayor, and I don't want the mayor to know, but I'll ask him. i got a yeah. problem asking. That, that's yeah, neither yeah. here nor there for me. Yeah, but it'd be, it'd be just nice to know what it would take, what it would have taken for us to match it even to get her to stay here, because right now, her other two doctors are not taking on, on any of her patients. We're thrown to the wolves, and guess what? We're getting another letter come. She's got to take the last, sorry, the first week of April off to close down her practice, and and we're getting a nunner letter to say, we're, what do we want to do with our falls? we got two options. Either the falls are going to go somewhere on Elizabeth Avenue, whatever that means. And if not, they're going to Toronto. And we got to pay $200 to get them back from Toronto. So you know what I'm going to do? Or you could just take them from the clinic. I'm going to. Well, that, we haven't got that letter yet, but I'll tell you what, I agree with you, Patty, me and you go down, and we'll take the falls under the arms, and I'm going to keep them on here under the bed, because if it goes to Toronto or goes to Elizabeth Avenue, there must be some bank, uh, medical bank or something at, at Elizabeth Avenue, or the, I don't know what's going to happen. Yeah, it's a but repository. Anyway. anyway. So what's going to happen with the 2800? Uh, okay. That's another, okay. Tw- um, we're, we're, we're frustrated that we never got the opportunity to match the, the perks that she's getting. Yes, but of course. I mean, we we could have come up but, with a house with her. But citizens don't put provide packages for doctors i mean no i know that. i'm just saying that right I'm, okay. I, know, I understand that but we're just upset frustrated that i understand the frustration doctor and now we're losing
losing her. Understood. And now what's going to happen now? Who's going to pick up the slack for her now? I have no idea, but we will ask questions of... Oh, you give her Mar- to the mayor Andrew. now. You, you I'll, give- I'll just ask him some questions. I'm not in the business of giving it to people. No, I didn't I'll just ask it. him a question oh, about, about it, and I appreciate the time, and hopefully the patients who are left without that particular family doctor can yeah. find a spot in one of the new collaborative care clinics good or more doctors can come on stream. Okay. Okay, good luck with that, Patty, because you, you even advertised that you took a year to get in. It, I did. So what are we going to do now? I don't know what we're going to do now, but I'm going to ask and Mayor Shea about this when we come back from this break, which I'm taking. Yeah. And okay. now we've got another 2,800 now out there now. Understood. We have already covered that. And I'll it's see you. worse. Appreciate the time. And listen, thank you. Thank you, Pat, for your patience. And, and I'll tell you what, the Eugene Nippards and all of them out there and the mayor now, but they were keeping their cards close to their chest until we got the letter. But I'll tell you what. Appreciate and the now, time. Now we got. Now we thank got, you. N- what? Thank you. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Let's take that break. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go. Line number six. Say good morning to the mayor of Fogo Island. That's Mayor Andrew Shea. Mayor Shea, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. Welcome to the show. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Uh, Let me start with what you just heard. What do municipal leaders, including you, Mayor Shea, on Fogo Island, know about the the package that was put together to bring a doctor to town? Anything? Well, Patty, first of all, i got to tell you that there hasn't been an official announcement yet. That's why we haven't spoken about it. Uh, Central Health hasn't announced that the doctor's coming here yet. So we know absolutely nothing about this yet. What do you know? Well, uh, what I know is from rumors, but the rumors are more than rumors to me, really. Uh, We know that there's a doctor coming in April month from St. John's. That's the extent of what I know. I know her name and I know where she's coming from and all that kind of thing, you know. But it has been provided by the government or central health. We have had no idea, no word from them that this doctor has come in here yet. Well, that's interesting. If her clinic is sending out letters to her patient roster of 2,800, I wonder what would be the holdup for the health authority itself to go ahead and let you know officially what's happening. That's sort of a strange disconnect there. Yeah, well, it is, because that's why we're out this morning, because a couple of times I had called previous to talk in for newspapers and certain stations and that, and I refused because I didn't know, and I still don't know for sure, but uh, but 99.9%, it's, it's happening. It's, the doctor is coming here. That's a definite, and that's a big plus for Fogo Island, I tell you. It's marvelous. Well, of course it is, you know, and there's the comment. And look, I understand if you're a patient of a doctor in and around the Northeast Avalon and you lose your doctor, it's frustrating. Of course it is. I would suggest it's probably a little bit more manageable, possibly a little bit easier to find a new doctor on the Northeast Avalon than it would be if you're living on Fogo Island because you're not only talking about a ferry ride and a fairly long drive to the next closest opportunity. And it was for centuries there was a doctor on Fogo Island. And just very quickly, Mayor Shea, because I get an email on this one all the time. The whole doctor down in the United States, you know, 40 years in, in medicine, was actually a graduate of Munns Med School. I wanted to come to town, go to Fogo Island, pardon me, and threw the jigs and the reels, issues with the NLMA, and it never did happen. People are pointing around all kinds of fingers of blame and fair ball. But part of that story that didn't get attended to was that there's a bunch of boxes that the doctor has to check, including background checks and others, which he would not do. So that was the end of the story, regardless of who's going to pay for licensing fees or whether or not virtual care led up to uh, continued accreditation. So there's more to that story, isn't there? Yes, there is. There's a lot more. And and basically it wasn't the the College of Physicians and Surgeons who, you know, 
stop this man from coming here. He didn't provide the necessary information. Right. Yeah. And you you can't come in and say you're a doctor, you know, and and, and come here. You know, you had to provide the documentation, which wasn't uh, wasn't shown to the the board, right? So that's about the size of it, but I continually get emails on that particular subject. And look, it's fine to want to blame whoever's to blame, but there's as much blame for the doctor himself than anybody else. So I just wanted to get that out there again because you'd be shocked how many emails I get on that one particular issue. Yeah, but that's, uh, that, that never was going to happen right from the start. I had a, a good idea that that was, you know, that was kind of out to lunch type thing, you know? A little bit. Yep. Definitely. You know, if you're you're going to come to Fogo Island and work for nothing, but yet you don't want to pay your fee to get your license. Something wrong with that. Yeah, it was a strange story from the get-go. And, yeah. I mean, yeah. if you don't want to do a background check, sure, you, you, can't, you can't coach minor hockey without a background check. No. <laughs> so, you know. We can't take a collection in the church without a background check. Yeah. There you <laughs> go. You know? yep. that, that's the way it is now. But this is really good news for Fogo Island, Patty, because we got a lot of tourists coming here, you know, tourists in the summer. You know, I don't know if they'd want to come if there's near a doctor here, you know, for medical service and things like that. It affects a lot of things, too. But this is a big announcement for us. This is really good. People are really delighted with it, you know. It's interesting that you mentioned that. I wonder, like, I don't think I've ever given much consideration to what kind of health care services would be where I'm going, but maybe people do. Fair enough. I never really thought about it like that. Some people do. We had an incident last year right on top of Brimstone Head where a person had a seizure. And we had to take him down and take him to Gander. You know, there's no hospital open here at the time. So, you know, there's, there's a serious things, And that, that can get around pretty quick, right? You know, so people do like to have the medical services. It will affect terrorism. And I think it's, it's great that we got this person, you know. And uh, also, Patty, we're working on another doctor for the summer. We're looking at another permanent doctor down the road. Uh, from around uh, New Jersey area who wants to come to Fogo Island. So we've been working on that for the last couple of months, just trying to get through the, you know, the, the college and the, and the uh, central health to get all our work done. And she's hoping to be coming here this summer too. So we're hoping to have two doctors by the summer, which is really, really good news. So now all you need is a third piece of good news because they all come in threes apparently. Oh, hope so. Hope we can get a nurse practitioner or something like that. But, but this doctor in the states is not from Fogo Island, but her father was, and they have a house there, and she's been coming here every summer. Okay. So she knows what she's getting into. So she's coming back to spend the rest of her days as a doctor here in Fogo Island. You know, and then with this gentleman on the, the, the there this morning talking about this doctor, you know, he said she was in her sixties. I don't know. I don't know even know who it is really. But uh, you know, maybe she just uh, you know want to. A different lifestyle, you know. Maybe she's just changing her lifestyle. She's she's done this all her life, and maybe she wants to go somewhere else and just enjoy it differently. Well, absolutely, and which is why, for instance, the deputy minister, Dr. Megan Hayes, has to, and I bet I'm sure she does, understand that all of these different issues, it's not the same for a recent graduate of med school versus someone who's in their 50s or 60s and or is married or not, has kids or not. I mean, it's just so many different things that have to be considered when, whether it be the regional health authority or Dr. Hayes is trying to recruit a doctor to Burgio, Fogo Island, St. Anthony, Happy Valley, Goose Bay, St. John's, or Mount Pearl, they're all different. And they're all different human beings with different needs and wants. So it's a complicated job, to say the very least, to make sure we have doctors where we need them, when we need them. But I'm sure the folks on Fogo Island are thrilled. Why wouldn't you be? Oh, my God. They're excited. Everybody is excited about it. Really, really excited. When you get the ultimate confirmation and know more about it or anything else that's happening in your community, you're always welcome on the show. Yeah. But uh, one other thing for sure. you, Lee. We, this council has been very involved with this process. You know, we've been on, in touch with Central Health and the board and 
constantly. And one time, one thing we're after telling the, the, the minister, and the minister has been good, he's talked to me several times, is that, you know, when the doctor comes here, she can't be on 24-7. He or she can't be 24-7. They have to have work a normal shift and do their whatever extra time they do, you know? So you still got to have locums come in to keep this person here because no one was going to come here and work 24-7, Penny. No. Can't do it. No, nobody wants to. So, so I hope they got something worked out with it. I don't know. I hope they got something worked out with this person that's coming here that they worked their shift and worked their call in too, you know, at a certain time and that, and just have a normal life because wherever you go, people don't want to work all the time. Everybody wants a normal life. They want to go on holidays. They want to do things. And that's part of coming here now, I think, you know. Well, it reminds me of the story on Belle Isle. They, I think they've got it somewhat rectified, but the doctor wanted a certain lifestyle to want to stay. They wouldn't uh, accommodate the requests, and so consequently went sideways. Look, yeah. I mean, people, we talk about work-life balance all the time, and whether or not people think this is a new era of lazy, I'm not so sure that's the case. I wouldn't mind having a bit of a better balance in my own world. So everyone wants it, and if you're in demand, highly in demand, very mobile professional like a doctor, you've got a bit more leverage than I <laughs> to try to come up with uh, sure. any work-life balance accommodations on your contract. Uh, good to have you on, Mayor Shea. We're off to the news. Appreciate the time. Yeah, anytime. Take, Take care. care. Bye-bye. That's Mayor Andrew Shea. Okay, what to whisper there, David Penny? Okay, we're taking a break for the news, but the outgoing CEO of the Community Sector Council is Penny Rowe. She's done a lot of great work in her service to that organization and many other organizations throughout the province over her time in that chair. Penny Rowe, right after this. Don't go away. You're busy, but you'll never be uninformed. Get up to date on the way home. The Drive on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number four. Say good morning to the outgoing CEO of the Community Sector Council. It's our friend Penny Rowe. Good morning, Penny. You're on the air. How are you this morning, Patty? I'm not too bad. Thanks for asking. How about you? I'm excellent. Thank you. Uh, in a serious wind-down mode here, but couldn't uh, resist the opportunity to phone in about some conversation that was raised earlier on the show regarding volunteerism in the province. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what the local numbers are. I did hear from Volunteers Canada that there is a shortage across the country in a variety of fronts, whether it be pandemic-related issues or taking on a second job or reprioritizing. What are we seeing here in the province? Interestingly, Patty, just last spring, uh, last June, the Community Sector Council, Newfoundland and Labrador, uh, undertook local provincial research, and we had very robust response. We had 335 respondents, which is a lot of people. And what we're seeing uh, is that about 60% of those organizations then were saying they were really struggling to find volunteers. But once you start to dig down under that, there are all kinds of other things that emerge. For example, uh, people may want to volunteer differently than they used to. Uh, We have obviously an aging demographic. Some of that demographic obviously stopped volunteering when they couldn't because of COVID. And many of them now are choosing not to go back. In other words, they, it, it, COVID almost <laughs> operated as an exit strategy for some volunteers uh, who may have wanted to move along anyway. And what we're seeing and hearing is that it's getting harder for organizations to recruit. 
it was never easy in the first place. But this is a major hurdle for these not-for-profits and charities to overcome because when you lose it, it's hard to get it back, whether we're talking about individuals or momentum or policies or investment, whatever the case may be. So if you're helping craft a message, not only for these organizations, but for people listening, I know the benefits, whether it be, you know, the, the self-satisfaction, and I know what it means for the community when people volunteer their time. How do we go about crafting a message to lure people back or to encourage younger people, which I thought we were on the right track, because if we're getting high school credit, for instance, for volunteering, the old adage of when you get them young, maybe you keep them forever. So how do we rejig the message? Well, I think part of it is really just almost peer recruitment. I mean, people talking about the satisfaction that they get from volunteering. On the other hand, organizations probably need to be reshaping their thinking somewhat as well. So, for example, one of the kinds of things, Patty, that we hear is that, you know, some people, given, you know, people's desire for work-life balance, and let's face it, when you're volunteering, you know, you're working, albeit as part of the unpaid labor force, but people don't necessarily want to be tied to a fixed time every week or every month for a meeting. And a lot of the age group around 30 and 40 in that area, when we talk to them, they often say, you know, I'd love to do something, but I have to be able to do it in my own time, in my own way. So that's a really clear message that we need to get out there, that there are many ways to, uh, for organizations to rethink both how they operate their organizations, how they can use volunteers. The other thing that we've picked up considerably uh, is that there is an inc- there's a cost to volunteering. So if you have to drive to do your volunteer work or you're expected to buy tickets when you're at work, that actually is a real inhibitor for some people. So that's part of rethinking and recrafting that message, as you call it. The other thing that uh, I would think is that we really need to be thinking about building a new strategy to how we encourage people, how we as organizations treat people when they come in as volunteers and how organizations can adapt to what volunteers want to do. And so that will require some new thinking and it's obviously work that CSC has underway but which will now uh, fall into the hands of my successor when he takes over next week. Uh, And so there'll be a huge amount uh, of opportunity based on all the work that we've been doing up to this point. The other thing that we hear a lot from people is that they genuinely feel undervalued and not appreciated to the extent that they would like to be. So there are all these fascinating pieces of information we've picked up in our formal survey, but we pick it up at every single meeting in every single community we go into as well. Some organizations might be nimble enough to be able to accommodate my schedule if I want to volunteer on my time at the pace that I choose. But that's going to be difficult for some because for many of these organizations, it's the immediacy of need that has to be attended to. Absolutely. So, you know, if you're a volunteer who's got responsibility for managing a program uh, and that organization is relying on you, that's a very different form of volunteering than if you just drop in occasionally or do kind of the one-off, almost informal volunteering. And we're seeing a real increase 
in informal volunteering where people want to do it on their own time in their own way without necessarily being affiliated with a formal organization. So that's a big trend that we're seeing across the country as well. Well, let's hope we can figure it out because I say it all the time is that if we we take the volunteerism and the number of volunteers out of the equation, whether we're talking about societal well-being or economic well-being, then governments are absolutely unable to replace that. They simply cannot do it. Yes, and there's a really important point. Your your previous caller uh, talking about the healthcare system. If we uh, refresh our memories on the Health Accord, NL, which was released a few months ago, a major part of the transformation that was being proposed is shifting uh, to the social determinants of health, to helping people uh, find ways to improve their health status so that, you know, 10 years down the road, we probably don't have some of such significant uh, numbers of people, for instance, who are getting into the healthcare system uh, because they haven't been able to eat properly or they don't have enough income to keep themselves moving forward in a proper fashion. The health accord, which, as I say, is so focused on the social determinants of health. Well, if you think about where that work is done in communities, it's very heavily, if not almost exclusively, done by nonprofit organizations. So there's a real connection and importance here of making sure that we get better at how uh, we strategize around volunteers because they are so fundamental to all of the directions which the province is trying to take and which everybody here in the province knows are vital for the social and economic well-being of the province, as you mentioned. Penny, while we have you, I'd like to touch on something else in this realm, and that's social enterprise. I believe you're uh, one of the directors on the national body regarding social enterprises. Give us the calls notes. I mean, exa- like when I hear people reference them, I'm not so sure everybody totally grasps, grasps what they are and what they do and what they can achieve. Just give us the 100,000 feet above sea level, how important they are and what they're doing. So social enterprises are organizations that are really social enterprising. I like to think of social enterprise as a verb rather than a noun. Mm -hmm. To do social enterprising work, you have to have a product or a service that you sell to the public, that you raise revenue. And that revenue goes back in to the benefit of your organization. Clear and simple. You have a product, you have a service, and you sell it. There's a dollar amount to it. So the notion of being social enterprising is about producing something that you can earn revenue from. There are, you know, if you look at theater groups in the province, for example, they are significantly social enterprising because they're selling tickets to the theater. If you look at tourism organizations, they may be raising certain amounts of money. All of us are being encouraged to look at this kind of uh, revenue stream of earned income to see if we can make a better fist of that. 
people tend to refer now to organizations that are social enterprises, but there's no such thing as a social enterprise structure in this province. You still have to register as a nonprofit in the province or as a charity and within the nonprofit sector. It's complex, but it's fascinating, and more and more organizations are getting really good at trying to build their social enterprise plans. And I know with a lot of the research that CSC has done over the years, we know that it requires certain skill sets. But one of the things we've done in the last year, Patty, which was really interesting, we have about 5,000 of our small business owners in this province who, according to national research, have indicated that they want to retire in the next five or six years. So we've just done a fascinating piece of work where we've looked at trying to plant the seed with small businesses that when they're looking uh, for succession planning in their businesses, that one option is to partner up with a nonprofit social enterprising activity that might be able to take over that service. So if you think of, you know, a small cleaning company in some community in the province, maybe nobody in the family wants to take it over, but maybe a social enterprise would. Or if you look at, you know, suddenly this sign goes up on a confectionery store or convenience store in a community. Sorry, we've we've closed up permanently. Maybe a local social enterprising organization could take that on and raise some revenue for their non-profit organization and keep that service open. I'm glad I asked. And just before we run out of time, and maybe much more on a personal note, do you know the old adage, if you want something done, give that task to a busy person? It's funny how that works, but the busy people get a lot more stuff done than folks who have a bit more idle time available. I mean, to read through your CV or your resume, I'd be here all day talking about the things you've worked on and the accomplishments that you've been behind. But as someone who has been as busy as you, the advocate on so many fronts, do you think it's able? you're able to slow down in the slowdown uh, phase you find yourself in now? Because I know busy people that all of a sudden, when they're not no longer officially busy, it's not a very easy transition. How are you looking for, towards it? Well, I'm actually very much looking forward to it. Uh, and I'm, uh, I'm delighted, you know, that we've now hired a new CEO, Colin Corcoran, who uh, will bring a... Fr- you know, a different eye to, to our organization and a different eye to to ways in which the sector can maneuver and, you know, promoting volunteerism or looking at ways in which we govern our organizations. I have to confess, obviously, there's so much stuff that CSC um, is in the midst of, uh, you know, that it's important to me that a lot of the good things that CSC has brought a long way along you know, will be continued and advanced and shifted and changed. Uh, for me personally, I have to say I uh, am definitely uh, not going to be sorry <laughs> to have the weight of the organization on my shoulder, shoulders every day, because when you're running a nonprofit, it is constant work, never-ending always having to shift and adjust and adapt and obviously keeping our organizations funded and well-staffed and having strong boards takes 
a lot of work and a lot of responsibility. Uh, so, uh, you know, while I'm, you know, definitely sad to go, I'm also happy to go. But I don't expect I'm going to uh, to disappear from the scene. I'm sure I'll find things that I want to do. Uh, and I do have certain things I'm plotting. But I have to say, for the first three or four weeks, uh, a holiday is, you know, locally here is going to be very welcomed and richly deserved uh, I've had the pleasure to do some work with you over the years I'll be not too much and I wish we had the opportunity to do more together or to collaborate further but I think the province owes you a debt of gratitude and you have been a real driving force behind so many important societal and economic uh, uh, programs and organizations that we can never thank you enough Penny it's great to have you on the show this morning congratulations and we wish you nothing but the, uh, the very best of uh, health and peace in your retirement Yes, thank you very much, Patty, and I'm sure we'll be in touch as we're getting geared up to celebrate Volunteer Week again in April of this year. I look forward to it. <laughs> okay. Bye-bye. Thank uh, you, and it's been a pleasure dealing with you, Patty, and thank you uh, to you and VOCM for all the support you've given to the Community Sector Council over the years. It's been very much appreciated. It's been our pleasure. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's Penny Rowe, or Penelope Rowe, the outgoing CEO of the Community Sector Council. I mean, just if you have a moment sometime today, have a look through the organization she's been involved with, the things that she's done, the accomplishments that she's achieved, astounding. Remember the Order of Canada? She's got an honorary degree of, uh, in laws at Memorial University. I think it's in laws, is it? Uh, yeah, Doctorate of Laws, I'm pretty sure. Honorary degree from Mon, as well as, you know, several times named one of the 50 most influential women in the country. So Penny Rowe, boy, it's going to be hard to fill her shoes. I wish Mr. Corcoran and CSC nothing but the very best. Let's take a break. When we come back, those of you in the queue, we appreciate your time and your patience. Catherine wants to talk about overflow at Her Majesty's Penitentiary. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go to line number one. Catherine, you're on the air. Hi, how are you? I'm doing okay. How are you doing? Good. Uh, just hold my phone on die before I get a chance to say what I have to say. Um, down at the Women's Correctional Center, I understand there's overflow down there. So much that they took over the men's weekend range at the HMP. And, um, I mean, it's their triple which is what they usually do down there. That's a fire hazard. You have that, there's no locking room installed. You actually have to crawl down to the end of your bunk to get to, to use the washroom. I mean, three women locked in a cell, one on the floor. Just have, you can't even get up and walk and go and use the washroom properly. There's a table above her, a steel table. If she got up quick, she'd probably smash her head, you know? Like, is there fire regulations? Should the fire department go in there and check to see what's going on? Like, um, I've been down there myself. I know they triple bunk people. Um, I even know that they've thrown mattresses and put girls out in schoolroom. And, um, I mean, where's the laws and where's the CEOs? How come they're always in the bubble? And, you know, like if one girl yells at another girl, automatically CEOs come running. First thing they do is lock you in the cell. They don't talk about what happened between the two of you and try to calm you down. They just let it, just lock you in. You need to be locked in to calm down. How are you going to calm down when you're locked in a little tiny cell with the closure slot? and you got no light of day. I'm just saying that the COs down there, some of them genuinely care, they do, but they're not doing their job. They need to get out of the bubble and start communicating with the inmates 
and talking to the inmates, get to know them, what their problems are, what their issues are, you know, any way they can help them. Um, I mean, I thought that's what their job was. But it seems like the only job down at the Women's Correctional Center is if two women fight, they come running. That's the only time I ever see them come out. It's at that time and mealtime when they pass through the trays. And then they go back and sit in the bubble. And I've heard them literally in the bubble say about one inmate that if she was down, they wouldn't even give her a breath of air. You know, like they are very, they think of people, like, all these women, why are they in there? Most of them are in there because of theft. Because we don't, we didn't get no extra money or nothing on our checks for when all the prices went up, when the rent went up, everything went up. They sent us out five hundred dollars just before Christmas. I mean, how far did five hundred dollars go? Just a couple of couple of questions. So the bubble is that the uh, the the area where That's they where do the they monitoring? All hang out. That's where all like there's a couch back there great big screen TV, you know, and at nighttime when we go to bed at 11 o'clock, we're required to be quiet, but you know what? We can hear them up there laughing and talking and joking and carrying on, and they go on for hours. They're on night shift. They're keeping inmates awake down there. They don't even, it's just so many complaints. I, I really have 28 pages written from the time I was in there. I had COVID. They locked me back in the back cell by myself. And in three days, I swear God, strike me dead. In three days, they brought me down three styrofoam cups one day of water. That was all I got in three days. My cell only had hot water. I couldn't drink hot water. And they kept me there like that. And they would come down and literally open the slot, throw me in my food, and slam it shut really quickly. They never checked on me every 15 minutes. I was down there banging and banging and banging and banging and banging. And the girls up there said there was no need of it. I got letters from the girls to say how sorry they felt for me, how I was treated when I was in there. And... Catherine. Something needs to be done. Someone needs to go in there and see what these correctional officers are doing. They need to get out and start working with the inmates. Just because they're drug addicts and they made mistakes, they're people too. They're somebody's daughter. They're somebody's mother. They're somebody's sister. They're somebody's aunt. Of course. Somebody got to get out there and start just communicate with these people and get to know who they are. Maybe there wouldn't be so many arguments between the inmates and stuff if they were out roaming around, you know? Catherine, how recently... Hold on. Catherine, how recently were you incarcerated? I was in there from March to September. And how many women are in HMP at this moment in time? Do you happen to know? I don't know, but I got a call that it's an overflow and that they had to send women into the HMP weekend lounge, which means all the guys who are doing weekends now will be sent down to the men's lockup. Now, when the men's lockup gets full, everybody else that had to do weekends, they pick and choose who gets a TA. So that person gets to go home for a weekend. They don't even have to stay in jail. 
and the, well, there's nowhere to put them in now. When they're, they're, if they're served to do weekends, there is no range to put the men on because the women had to take it over because of the overflow down at the Women's Correctional Center. And just so I'm clear, it, with the triple bunking, you're saying that there are women in a cell with two other women. One woman is forced to sleep on the floor. On floor. Then you made reference to being checked on every 15 minutes. Like, were you in the shoe, or what's no, the 15? I'm going to tell you what. I got hit in the head with a remote control. I was brought to the doctor. I had a staple put in my head. I was put in my cell with the door locked. When they come down, they give me medication at 11 o'clock, or whatever time it was at night. They come to give me my medication. I couldn't talk. They didn't check on me every 15 minutes. When they sat me up, I kept falling face first. So they called an ambulance. They thought I overdosed. So the ambulance came, took me, did all kinds of blood work and stuff. I couldn't even talk. I didn't know where I was. Nothing. I had a major concussion, and they left me in the cell by myself. Uh, last one, Catherine, before I have to go. You know, you, you say they thought you overdosed. Where does all the drugs come from inside the prison? Because the women are hoarding pills. Or if you're, if you know that you're going in for the weekend, right? You know, like if you're going, you know, if you're being sentenced that day, girls, they'll, they'll take whatever they can in. You know, you know, it's trade a commissary. You know, like get on the good side of somebody. If somebody's there, you know that there's somebody in there that you got beef with. You know, you'll try to take in some pills or something, you know, just to sort of save your ass or whatever in there. You don't take a beating, like, because it takes a while. If those CEOs are in the bubble and you're back, like, there is no camera in the utility closet. Like, you can get anybody in that utility closet and they wouldn't see a thing. They wouldn't yeah. even know. I've been in there with a, you know, a... A tour, not during mealtime, where it's, you know, pretty much people confined to their cells or very specific areas. And I've had that tour where it's it's a madhouse. I mean, it really, truly is. It is it, it's on wheels down there. Exactly. Catherine? It is a madhouse. And it wouldn't be if the CEOs went out and communicated instead of sitting their ass in the bubble and bragging about their 33 bucks an hour that they make. And you know what? That came from a CEO's mouth when he took me to the dentist. He's like, like, oh, you know, I just make my 33 bucks an hour today. Catherine, I appreciate and the time for painting the picture of what's happening down there. I hope you're well. It's awful. It's awful. I'm going to tell you right now, it's awful. They had me locked in so much hey, down Catherine. there that I tried to hang myself. And I, and I didn't want to say that, but I did. And my roommate opened the slot and saw me. But you know what? It was that terrible that I would have rather been six feet under pushing up daisies than have to deal with what I did dealt with while I was there and like I said I wrote 28 pages while I was there. Okay. I spent a lot of time left to myself. I, I understand so. and I appreciate the time and I'm sorry to hear the circumstances and hopefully you don't find yourself in the same environment uh, in the future. Yeah. Thanks for this. I wish you well. I understand and I appreciate it. There is somebody who, who, who really cares. Thank you, know? you Catherine. I appreciate the time. I wish you well. 
Thank you. Take care. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Uh, break time, then Mike wants to respond to Peter Leonard. Uh, maybe comments on CNL or macro licenses or something. Then Paul, issues with recruiting volunteer firefighters. Talk away. Uh, welcome back. Let's go. Line number six. Mike, you're on the air. Hey, Patty. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, Patty, uh, per- first of all, thanks to you and VOCM and Stingray and your team for the service that you provide to the community. Wow, I listened to some callers while I was waiting, and uh, boy, oh boy, you're, you give them the opportunity to share their experiences and what's going on and their issues, and uh, what a valuable service that Stingray and BO are putting out there. So thanks very much for that, Patty. Happy to be here. Um, yeah, Patty, I, I, uh, I'm calling in response to one of your earlier callers. I didn't hear who it was. I, I caught the... Uh, just after they got into it. So I hear you refer to it as as the person, as Peter Leonard. But uh, he was talking about uh, mackerel. Uh, Difficulty was getting in mackerel in that there has been a moratorium placed on the mackerel fishery uh, by DFO. Uh, And I believe uh, Peter uh, referenced to CNL. That's SEA, uh, I think it's Seaward Enterprises Association, Newfoundland, Labrador, something like that. Yep. CAL. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, the uh, the services they provide to inshore harvesters, about 30-something hundred of them uh, in Newfoundland and Labrador, and, uh, you know, the information services he gets from there and, and how valuable it is. Penny, um, I'm deeply concerned, like I've never been before, uh, about the fishing industry in Newfoundland and Labrador. Uh, Mr. Leonard's comments this morning about the freeze on his mackerel license and not willing to let him pay for it and sign it over to him, I think it's a solid indicator of what's happening with the federal government of Canada with the acquiescence of the province of Newfoundland and Labrador in the way the fishing industry, the inshore industry in particular, is going now, Patty. as a result of these COP um, uh, conventions, or these are, uh, uh, let's call them a coalition of partners or a conference of partners. The first one that really impacted us, uh, Mr. Um, the, uh, Mr. Bernard Davis, our Minister of Environment and Climate Change, attended in Ottawa and what came out of, or in uh, Egypt. And what came out of that was a glowing picture of Mr. Davis with the former head of the International Fund for Animal Welfare complimenting each other on the fine work they were doing. Uh, The next one was in Montreal, and it was COP15. And what's come out of that? It's been very quiet, really. It's not a whole lot come out of there. But what has come out of there is a commitment that the the fishing and the management of the fishing industry off the coast of Newfoundland and Labrador is going to change and change significantly. It's going to be managed by the Department of Environment and Climate Change. This is Minister Bernard Guillebeau. So what that department is doing under the guise of, uh, of conservation and, uh, and biodiversity is going to be administering the Fisheries Act. And it's going to sort of uh, do things first, uh, take action, ask questions later. They're going to start, and they have started, working with DFO, telling DFO what moratoriums to put on what species. So the value of the licenses that, uh, or the permits that the caller had before, not only that caller, but all callers on inshore, in Newfoundland and Labrador. Their value of their licenses are going to become so uncertain that the value they had last month, Patty, they will not have 
in months to come because they don't know what's going to be under a moratorium. And anybody who wants to buy it, most of these people, these permit holders now are aging. A, a couple of comments, Mike. So, would yeah. there, I don't think there's any difference, administrative differences between our fishery or Nova Scotia or anywhere else when it comes to like the Mike's want or pardon me, Peter's want to have his license as a placeholder on the front page of his enterprise and all those types of things. And secondly, shouldn't there be a distinct overlap between departments regarding environment, climate change, and the fishery? There should be, but Newfoundland and Labrador, for example, as a province, does not have that. Mr. Davis is the one who's been looking after conservation and biodiversity. He's the one from the Department of Environment and Climate Change who's been active on this file for Newfoundland. Management of the fishery in Atlantic Canada in particular is going under marine protected areas. And the marine protected areas are designated for control and management by Aboriginal partnerships. So the government of Canada has made a decision that as, as a matter of reconciliation, and, uh, and of, of course, they all now have their researchers and writers hired and former government officials working with these indigenous groups. They have now made a decision that the resources best managed, best overseed, best allocated for Aboriginal partnerships who have partnered themselves with offshore companies. But let's go back to Mr. Leonard for a minute. Not only Mr. Leonard, all the Mr. Leonards, and I wish CNL and FFAW would straighten up the mess they got themselves into because they're so vulnerable and we're hurting over that. Uh, what's going to happen is that the value of your, per- your licenses now, your enterprises, they're going to go in the toilet compared to where they were because before these enterprises had sort of guarantees that they would be able to continue to fish. Well, they're going to lose that under the new management system, and it's all going to be under the guise of conservation and biodiversity. The places crawling up north with a bunch of non-governmental organizations formerly involved in anti-seal hunt and everything else. You can't find an Aboriginal person up there that doesn't have a, an arm of a NGO wrapped around them. I got no problems with that. I think uh, Aboriginal uh, stewardship is a good idea. It's a great idea. I don't know how it goes for you know fishing enterprises off, off, the, off the maritime to the Atlantic. That's where it's going to happen down here. But, but you know, I'm really disappointed with FFAW, and they sort of all taken their own little, their own little foxhole, and they've kind of been looking after their own little interests. And I think the people of Newfoundland and Labrador, and in the short and the long term, Mr. Leonard, and all of the people like a Mr. Leonard, the inshore, are going to pay dearly for this, and FFAW. You know, it's not doing its work. I'm badly disappointed. I've never been disappointed with that organization before. They don't want to talk to anybody. They're on the ground. The Fisheries Department of Newfoundland and Labrador keeps saying, oh, that's that's an Ottawa issue. So, Patty, uh, if if I wanted to find out what was going on at COP15, and I did, because I... Myself and some friends have a thing called Coastal People Resource Protection Group to give us a plan, give us a, to give us a, a platform to seek these things. We asked provincial fisheries, and they referred us to Mr. Davis's department, who referred us back to fisheries, who then referred us back to the Federal Department of Fisheries for information. Yeah, I mean that that circular firing squad is 
been a source of frustration on just about every governmental front. Uh, Mike, I appreciate the time. Do you have anything else quick to say before I sneak Paul on before we run out of time this morning? No, I just want to thank you and uh, and, and uh, your station and your co-workers again for the great service you've been putting out there every day, not only today, but every day. Thank appreciate you. it, Mike. Thank you. Right, bye-bye. Uh, last word goes to line number seven. Paul, you're on the air. How you doing, buddy? Grand. You? Good, sir. Just uh, bear with me. Just out of my comfort zone. But I uh, I want to touch base on your time of volunteering, and uh, this is pretty much a completely different animal inside of uh, volunteering. It's volunteer firefighting. Okay. And, and it's a real job now to get recruitment. I started at this in 96. I'm 42 now. I spent most of my life at it. I see a lot more firefighters go than come. And you got to look at it. You're also asking people to get up 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. On a day up, they probably have to get up in a couple hours to go to work and do this. Not everyone's going to do that. And it's getting to the point now where a fire department that could usually cover a scene of, like, decent 10 to 12 members, you're only getting three or four showing up, and you have to call another fire department. And a lot of people are in the same boat. I would imagine they are. It's a major commitment and a, a, certainly a distinct love of the community to be a volunteer, a volunteer firefighter. I mean, you think about the things they see, the trauma they experience. Risking life and limb as a volunteer is extraordinary. So the only difference between volunteer firefighters and those in the so-called professional ranks is a paycheck. Exactly, exactly. And, like, I have my qualifications as a professional. I just use that into the volunteer to pass it on. That's all I'm looking to do, better or far, but I pass it on. But, like you say, if how are, you, how are we going to fill these positions? A lot of members now are aging out. I know in rural Newfoundland, where I'm up in the CBC area, the average age on some of these fire departments is 50s. That's yeah. the other side of it. So what do volunteer fire halls do to recruit? I mean, do they have active campaigns, or how does it actually work? Do you know? Uh, you're active. More than that, Patty, to be honest. Yeah, okay. You yeah. know how that travels. Um, just yeah, Facebook, just send it out. But like you say, people don't have time. And like you said, I get up 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning, go do what I got to do, and probably got to get up and go to work or leave there and go to work. That's the other thing. People just... It's a lot. It's a big ask of a community, but there is a lot of communities now where really find this and struggling. I'm going to follow up on this because I've got contacts in the volunteer firefighting world. You know, some of the halls are hybrid. There's some uh, paid professionals on site, and then there's other volunteers with very similar training on site. So I know a couple of these captains. I'm going to fire off some notes and see what I can find out in their halls and what they know about other firefighter recruitment, volunteer firefighter recruitment in the province. Paul, you've had the last word. I'll give you the last chance to wrap it up before I hit 12 o'clock. Go ahead. Yes, Patty, I'd love that. And if there's anyone out there just want to feel it out and see how it goes, by all means, contact your councils and try it. And their kids are looking for volunteer hours. I know some departments do junior programs. There you are. Another good suggestion. Thank you, Paul. Have a good one. You too, buddy. All the best. Bye-bye. All right, that's an interesting one. I will follow up on that. Uh, Good show today, and big thanks to all who support the program. We will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.